It's finally here, man. I can't believe it, but holiday season is upon us, but that usually means for a lot of us, some additional stress. You've got the stress of travel, of work, of weather, but then there's the financial stress. And there's an old saying in the South, there's no stress like money stress. And if that's got your family stressed out, man, go to savewithbruce.com. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Find out how easy it is to get rid of all that credit card debt, get a lower monthly payment, and skip your next two house payments. That's right. No payments in December or January. You're done until February 1st. And come February, how much money will you be saving every month? 500, 600, 700, 800. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. But if you need some extra Christmas cash, and you've got some credit card debt, or you just like a cheaper monthly payment on your mortgage, we can get you the cash you need and make life fast and easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Go to savewithbruce.com right now. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce. Well, you know, that's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib? No, yeah, but there's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shock him. You, Bruce. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, uh, well, back from jolly old England, where I was told I was devilishly handsome and uh, absolutely splendid. Yeah, man, I got to tell you that uh, that trip we did with Fight Forever is maybe the coolest thing we've gotten to do so far with the podcast. And we've done some pretty cool stuff, but I got to see parts of the world I'd never seen and. A couple of crowds chanted my name, man. It was, uh, it was surreal. I, I, don't, I didn't really know what to expect, but wow. I hope we get to do that again sometime. I hope it exceeded your expectations. Oh, by far, or as Tony would say, without question. Uh, unfortunately though, I don't think we exceeded everyone's expectations last week. We uh, taped our in your house to generation X episode live from my hotel room at two in the morning. And, uh, apparently somewhere along the way, you had your cell phone near the microphone and it interfered and well, why is it my cell phone? Why can't it be your cell phone near the microphone? I had, I had a headset. I know you had a headset, but you had your phone in your hands. You were keeping abreast of a situation back home. Well, you had your phone in your hands and you were keeping abreast of our situation. Uh, mine was in airplane mode because I know that I can't have cellular devices near the mics. Well, that's bullshit. So it's, it's my fault or it's your fault. It's not my fault. Okay, so who are we going to blame here? Oh, it's Matt Coon's fault. Bingo. <laughs> Serious business. Uh, you know, we didn't realize that we had an issue until you guys uh, called us up the next day. Because whenever I listened to it just here and there, uh, the spots I clicked on sounded fine. But I do know there were some sounds that maybe it sounded like we had old Super Dave's uh, lightsaber or some such nonsense. But either way, 
Uh, we're back at you again this week. What was the feedback you got about in your house DX other than, you know, folks saying that it sounded like you were uh, from star Wars, you know, for the most part, it was all positive. So I, I thank you for that because we were a little tired. I think there were some comments that we sounded a little bit tired. I think somebody said, did Conrad fall asleep sometime during the show? I was like, no, we were wide awake because in reality, we were really back on our time, but it was still tiring and we got through the thing. And for the most part, uh, it was positive on the content end of things. Yeah. I really had a good time with that episode just because I love exploring the, uh, Oat heart story, you know, post screw job. And that was really one of the first times we got to dig into that particular storyline. And we even talked about blade jobs in an interesting place. Uh, what a, what a, what a fascinating practice. All of it is. Uh, what are you looking forward to coming up next here, Bruce? Well, man, you know, we, uh, have a few weeks off. Well, I do anyway, from being on the road, but I'm leaving to go on the road here for something else. But Eric Bischoff and I are going to be right here in Friendswood, Texas at Fitterman Sports at the Baybrook Mall on Saturday, January 5th. Can't wait to see everybody then. And then uh, January 19th. I want to mention, because I get this all the time, you're not doing a show in a mall. Uh, You you, you can come get your picture made and you can come uh, get an autograph, but there's not going to be something to wrestle in 83 weeks at this autograph and photograph opportunity in the mall. Correct. It's not a show. Clarifying that. I just get it a lot. Like, hey, why aren't you doing that show? It's it's not a show. It's just a meet and greet and whatnot and so forth, et cetera. It's going to be like, I think there's going to be about 15 different talent there. It's going to be a huge autograph signing. And uh, I just like to plug Eric and I because we're together, man. So that'll be a lot of fun. And then uh, January 19th, we're back in the show business and the live show business in Colorado Springs. So that should be pretty damn cool as well. And then uh, heading off January 27th, day of the Royal Rumble. VIP tickets are sold out for Phoenix, Arizona. And then March 1st, Eric and I, this will be a show. This is going to be a Monday Night Wars debate live and in color in Connecticut. So that should be pretty damn cool. And then I'm heading off all by myself to Australia for March 22nd. I'll be in Sydney, the 23rd, Melbourne, and the 24th in Brisbane. Get all your tickets, all your information over at BrucePritchard.com. I want to mention too, you know, we got lots of requests. Why isn't Conrad on that trip? And I'm getting some people who are saying that I don't want to go to Australia. No, it's just like our tour of England that we just did. Bruce went last year by himself, proved that, Hey, um, we can make it work over here. And so when we came back, I was along for the ride, sort of the same deal here. If you want to see uh, Bruce and I in Australia, then you need to go see Bruce this time in Australia. Fair to say absolutely it's fair to say and it's also fair to say that we owe a few people some big thanks man and i think a special shout out to some of the guys that helped us out so much this past week over in the uk and ireland and scotland and, and the guys that were with us on the road every day jonathan and simon uh man you guys were great we greatly appreciate it and uh your buddy cody rhodes who uh, came in and did our last two live shows with us. That was an awful lot of fun. The Godfather, Papa Shango was there. Ross, Steve, everybody with Fight Forever Wrestling can't say enough about the tour. And um, he throw your airport is huge. By the way, I want to mention, yeah, I haven't seen much British wrestling. I was blown away at the amount of talent 
and the cards that the guys of Fight Forever were able to put together. And I can't put them over enough. Simon and Jonathan are a couple of wrestling fans like myself who decided, hey man, I want to contribute. And they've just grown up loving wrestling their whole life. And this was their first foray, just like this was my foray in podcasting. And then I tried a little convention called StarCast. And man, they're just good dudes, just like me and you listening to this show right now and trying really hard and put together a very well-organized, uh, top-notch production, and they're doing a series of events after the first of the year, and those tickets are on sale now uh, for their January show, their February show, and their March show. They've got big names coming, too. Uh, the former Neville, who's going by Pac, of course, Will Ospreay, lots of others, and lots of talent that maybe wasn't on my radar, but is now. Uh, you were already in the loop on Joe Hendry. I was not. It was my first time seeing Jimmy Havoc live. I uh, had a ton of fun with uh, Fanta- watching the Phantasmo matches. and There's just so much good stuff going on with Fight Forever. Go out of your way to check it out. I mean, I thought it was top-notch, didn't you? Yeah, it really was. And I'm a lover of wrestling, so I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was fast-paced and a lot of action and guys telling some great stories and the most just <laughs> fantastic fans anywhere in the world. They were great. They were passionate. They were there. They knew what they wanted. And by God, they got it and they let them know what they liked and what they didn't like. Well, you're going to love it. Go check it out. Uh, Whenever they come your way, you don't want to miss it. Uh, And I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this episode because there's lots of meat on the bone. And this is a sleeper episode this week for me. It's rock bottom, which was the pay-per-view from December of 1998. Of course, we're on the heels of survivor series, 1998, which we just covered which is arguably Vince Russo's greatest work. And man, when I watch this show back, I don't know what my expectation was. I sometimes think that, you know, I don't really like 1998, man. When you look at the crowd reaction throughout this, I mean, this is really a testament to Vince Russo, this entire show to me, because there's so much stuff that I don't remember being this over, but it's over. And it it felt like everybody on the card mattered. And you've, made that point before that he gave every single performer some sort of storyline some stakes they had something you know that that you could attach to as a fan my initial takeaway from this is this was a much better pay-per-view than i remembered yeah it really was i mean there were there was a couple stinkers in there but you still had to you almost had to kind of watch everything and for me it was entertaining, and I thought that it was an exciting show from top to bottom that kind of kept you kept you in there. It, this was better than what we talked about last last week, and better in some ways, worse in some ways. But it was a lot of fun to go back and revisit. Well, nineteen ninety eight is always fun for you to revisit because it's the first year in a long time that you guys are making a ton of cash, and you're firmly beating WCW. Let's talk about it. It's in your house. Number 26. It went down 20 years ago yesterday, December 13th, 1998 at the general motors place, which is now the Rogers arena. And it's right there in Vancouver. Uh, the international incident pay-per-view from 1996 with that warrior six man that they were trying to put together also took place in this building. And the WWF has done a lot of pay-per-view and major shows over the years in Toronto and Calgary and Edmonton even, but not a ton in Vancouver, but this was a, a raucous crowd. Why don't you think they got more big shows in Vancouver? I don't think they've held a pay-per-view there since. 
I don't know, because the Vancouver building was great. They've done a lot of TV there, and the building itself is terrific. I don't know if it's just so damn far to go and expensive, but it was always one of my favorite places to go because there was about four blocks in the middle of Vancouver that you could actually smoke pot uh, in this one little area. It was legal to smoke, legal to have, but you couldn't sell it or buy it. Um, Fun little spot in Vancouver was one of my favorite places. I can't tell you why they didn't do more pay-per-views, but they, like I said, they have done TV coupled with uh, Seattle and places like that in the Pacific Northwest. It's just tough getting everything over the border, all the TV equipment and all the talent and personnel. But you did it in Montreal, you did it in Toronto, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's on the East Coast. That's not, that's not as far west as you could possibly go. But you just said border, implying that that was the issue. Well, no, the border is an issue, but still, when you add the border and the issue and the just the distance in general, it's it all adds up. You can throw them all in there. Cool. Um, 1998, best year in the history of the year or company that you've been there. I mean, you, for, you were there in 87 on the heels of WrestleMania 3. Obviously, you were there during the dark period in the mid-90s. You had to sort of white knuckle it in 96, 97 showed signs of improvement, but man, you guys are making money hand over fist here in 98. Are you not? Yeah. As far as revenue and as far as money towards the bottom line and to me, uh, 98 was the best up until this point by far. Just to give you sort of a glimpse, uh, maybe like we'll take a stab at say five years here, December of 93, your average attendance is 1,980 fans. Fast forward to December of 98, your average attendance is 12,963. Is that not unbelievable to you? It's a nice, that's a nice period of growth. I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, really we need to take a snapshot of five years. It's incredible. But even year over year is, is ridiculous. In December of 97, your average attendance, 6,616. One year later, you're up 95.9%, 12,963. That also means your money is up as well. Your average gate in December of 97, which was still very healthy compared to prior years, that was 113 grand. It's over 298,000 here by December of 98. You're selling out 100% of your house shows in December of 98. I want to mention that again, because this is never going to happen again. I mean, based on the way the business is trending right now, it doesn't look like this will ever happen again. 100% of the house shows in December of 98 were sold out. You think that ever happens again, Bruce? Yeah, I do. But the business has changed to a point where I don't think it, it matters as much to the bottom line. It's not going to be priority to the company. I just don't see it, man. I, I think it'll come around. I mean, every, you know, I've, I've heard so many times the death of the business. This is it. It'll whoa, never whoa. be like this again. It'll die. It'll never happen. And it does. And it always comes back around. So, okay. Well, will they have a big buy rate on pay-per-view? Like we're going to talk about here in a minute. Well, the pay-per-view business and that has changed. Okay. You know, they have a I'm million saying. subscribers to a network at that time. No, they didn't. So it, it's a different business. That's right. Which is why they're never going to have this amount of house shows again. Back then Barnum and Bailey was a thing. I mean, well, that amount, I don't, I don't know if they'll even have that amount, the amount of house shows that we had 98 and but so, I think that the house show business will be strong again. You just don't want to fucking say anything negative. Afraid maybe. No, I think the house show business will be good again. What? What? The, how is that fucking? I mean, why do you want to be negative? I'm not negative. I'm being realistic. The business is changed. I'm being realistic too. 
I'm, I'm just saying it's about content creation now. And he used air quotes that you can't see more so than butts and seats. The business has changed, but you're like, no, it'll be like this again. No, it won't. Uh, I, don't I, get me wrong. Know, the question was, do I think that there will ever be a time that all the house show businesses will be hundred percent sold out? And I said, yes, I think that there could be that time again. No, it won't. But let me okay, say this, you don't- but you, you also painted me into the picture where you said, Oh, well, you know, oh, it's the end of the business. No, I'm not saying that the company's worth more now than ever before. I'm not saying that I'm saying it's changed. And that was my point, but here's the reason we're here. The rock is your new world champion. He won in that survivor series and he goes from being maybe on, you know, on his way to being the number two baby face, or maybe, I guess he was the number two baby face. And now he's the number one heel because he's aligned with Mr. McMahon and he's the corporate champion. And this pay-per-view is in fact named after his finishing move, the rock bottom. And we sort of talked about this a little bit last week on our, in your house, to generation X episode, but when did you guys know that you were going to name this one rock bottom and make rock the cover of the poster and the pay-per-view and the marketing? Was it all based on, Hey, we know what we're going to do at survivor series. So let's just follow it up and keep that momentum riding in the Royal rumble. Well, a lot of it during this time was so much of it was done on the fly. So it wasn't, they didn't, I guarantee you that they didn't have it, uh, six months in advance and knew it was going to be the rock bottom. It was just something that they may have had an idea. And a lot of those names attached to it came at the last minute where it was still an in your house. And then they were like, well, we'll add those, those taglines to it after the fact. So it was probably only a couple of months before that, that they probably even knew that they were going to name it the rock bottom. And that just became a tagline. Well, let's, um, let's talk about, you know, the behind the scenes, um, because it does feel like we had seen this a couple of years prior, uh, the prior year in December of 97, it was in your house, degeneration X December of 96 was in your house. It's time. And that was probably named when it felt like Shawn Michaels was going to be in a three match program with Vader, which of course we know changed course and then became Sid at survivor series. So on the heels of survivor series, 96 it's it's time, which is a Vaderism. And then we see the same thing with the world title in 97 with the X. And now here in 98, you start to see a bit of a pattern. Uh, let's, let's cover where we are news wise. Uh, Meltzer would report that the world wrestling Federation super Astro show on November 22nd drew what quote on the surface appeared to be strong ratings, but were numbers well down from what Univision had been previously doing in the time slot. The- Wait, hang on. Let me, let me stop you right there. That's completely false. We did 10 times what the previous programming had been doing in that time slot. 10 times. Okay. It drew a 7.1 Hispanic rating on the Univision affiliate in Los Angeles, a 5.8 in New York, a 12 in Chicago, a 5.5 in Miami and a 3.4 in San Antonio. So what you're saying is those are a 10 times multiple of what it was before. Yeah. They weren't even doing a one in the time slot before. Okay. So where does, where do you suggest Meltzer maybe got this news? Uh, I have no idea where he got the news, but he's, 100% incorrect because you could go and check the ratings at the time and you look at what the ratings were doing and we were getting them directly from Univision. And Univision was ecstatic that we had increased viewership in that time slot more than 10 times. 
in addition to that, what, what they were upset about was they went, well, holy shit, you're bringing in all of this audience, but then they're leaving right after you're done. It was a half hour show and they were looking for something. They were looking for lead ins. They were looking for something to grow their audience across the board. We were bringing in an audience for 30 minutes, but they weren't staying. I, I dare say a lot of it was an English speaking audience. I want to mention that you guys did have some new matches that were taped on November 1st in Austin, Texas. You did some interviews that were taped in that same building. And then a lot of studio wraparounds, which were basically ways to introduce these WWF characters to this new audience, the mainstream guys rock and Austin, but you also want to feature some new talent here. And the first show, this is directly from the observer put over Armando Fernandez, the Mexican wrestler, Tarzan boy. Who Meltzer would say the WWF was attempting to market as its top Latino babyface. Um, what do you remember? Uh, by the way, uh, Jesus Castillo of Los Bariquos was also featured here under a different name, as was El Hio Dos Santo. Chat me up. How did you guys decide on these being the three guys you wanted to push? But these weren't the three guys we were going to push, they were just the 30 guys on the first show. You had 30 minutes. So we, we had to introduce guys. There was no top guy. There was no, oh, this is going to be who we're going to push. This was an opportunity where we looked at it, that we were going to introduce characters for three to six months and then start little in-program angles and things of that nature. We had gone down. We had reached an agreement with some guys uh, that were working for EMLL in the middle of that. A lot of uh, the guys from EMLL started going to WCW and, and were getting under that contract where WCW, after they learned what we were doing, offered an exclusive contract to Paco Alonso, who was the owner of EMLL. Paco gave me the opportunity because I had come to him first, take the talent you want, get them now, but sign them now. The rest of them are going to be exclusive to WCW. And WCW did that as a preventive measure so that we couldn't sign up, you know, talent. They were using AAA guys. They had a deal with AAA. So we went and did a deal with the MLL. Um, I ended up with, you know, most of the independent guys and the ones that I wanted from EMLL. And we were just using this as an opportunity in the beginning, just introduce characters, get guys on TV and start introducing people. But we had no, I really had no idea who we had. Um, as far as who was going to be a top guy who wasn't, um, nor did we know whether or not this was going to go any further other than just a 30 minute television show. So there was a lot of unknown in that, but, um, those were the three guys that we, you know, put out there on the first show and it was Univision looking to have an audience and looking to build, they, they had a slot. They put us in on Sunday morning and they looked at it. Here's an opportunity to see what they can do. The audience tuned in and then they tuned right out after we were off the air. Talk to me about super crazy. He's on one of these shows as super loco. One of my favorite talents of all time and crazy had been a mainstay, uh, in Mexico. And, and one of the guys that Victor Quinones used to like to use, whether it was in Mexico, uh, Puerto Rico, and Japan. So he was somebody that I'd always always liked his work, and he was super easy to get a, get, get a, just be with. I mean, he was a really, really nice guy. 
So Super Crazy had been doing uh, stuff for ECW as well, coming in and out. So he was contracted to, I think he was contracted to actually Victor Quinones, but he had no affiliation exclusively with any of the Mexican promotions, uh, AAA or EMLL. And, uh, man, if, if there was somebody that I wanted to feature, it probably would have been uh, loco. Why don't you think it worked out? Uh, the reason it didn't work out was because Univision after a while, even though that the ratings were better than anything that they had in that entire time area on a Sunday morning, early afternoon, they wanted, uh, they wanted something that was going to lead in to their Sunday afternoon programming. And they felt that our programming that while it was good in its time slot, did nothing to help their network beyond that. It was like, tune in for this, but if they didn't, beyond that, they weren't staying for their other programming. They were looking for something to be more commiserate with all of their other programming. So it just didn't. After time, they thought, yeah, you're, you are doing the ratings, you're delivering all that, but you're not delivering the audience that's going to stay for the rest of our day. What was Vince's okay. level of involvement with a show like this? We know that he's super hands-on with what we see here in America. How involved was he with this show? Not at all. Um, he had handed it off to me and just said, make it work. So he didn't, he gave me full blessing on any of the talent that I wanted to hire, anything I wanted to do with it. As far as booking the talent, I used Negro Casas and, and Victor Quinones to help me book the talent and Negro helped with the angles and, and he dealt with the Mexican side, uh, the guys coming in from Mexico because he was also Paco Alonso's booker for so long. Um, Vince was very hands off, really. Uh, we hired the only thing that he was more hands on with was the hiring of the backstage interviewer, which was a female and the commentators that, because that, that was a hot spot with Univision. They had to speak Mexican Spanish or Spanish Mexican. And there's different dialects. There's Mexican Spanish, there's Puerto Rican Spanish, there's Portuguese, and then there's Spanish Spanish from Spain. They wanted a hybrid of Spanish from Spain and Mexican from Mexico, uh, that dialect on their air. That was just tough, tough to find. We had some really great Mexican commentators and we had some great Mexican personalities and we had some pretty good, um, uh, Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricans didn't, didn't want the Mexicans. The Mexicans didn't want the Puerto Ricans. And it was just a cultural clash until you had to find the right one. And Univision also had to approve it on their side. So that was a tough process, but we got through it. Well, I don't know when we'll talk about it again. So I'm glad we got to here. Uh, Meltzer would also report at the end of November that you guys had purchased a $1.6 million 30 second spot during the Super Bowl game. And the commercial at this point hadn't yet been designed, but Meltzer sort of freestyles that it'll probably be something to promote WrestleMania. Of course, this, uh, commercial is still something that people are fascinated with and a behind the scenes look at this commercial has surfaced in more recent years and you're on it. 
Um, what do you remember about shooting that Super Bowl commercial? I don't know when we'll talk about that. It was a David Hottie uh, production, man. That was something that Sahadi worked on with an outside group. And as we got closer to it, it's funny, the different speculation that people had as far as what's it going to be? You know, are, are we going to do a WrestleMania commercial? And Vince's vision of this thing was it was a way to expose the WWF brand to the outside world. So it wasn't a WrestleMania commercial. It was all about attitude. It was all about exposing the brand. Um, Sahadi worked with a, a production group out of New York that came in and uh, did an excellent job. But that was a, I want to say it was like a two day shoot in the offices back and forth. That was a hell of a lot of fun. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it other than getting talent there and working with the talent a little bit. Did you, you guys sit around and, and kick around ideas for what you were going to do in the commercial or how do you remember it coming together? I remember getting everyone's suggestions and Vince asked people what, here we have this opportunity. We've purchased the time. What do we do with it? And there were the department heads. We all sent in our ideas as far as what we thought it should be and how we thought we should utilize that time. And it, it eventually just came down to Vince. No, I want to do all of it. I want to expose the product and the talent to this audience. It's, you know, a huge audience, the Super Bowl. And plus, you know, if you have an ad on the Super Bowl, man, that means you've arrived and all this other good shit. And it was it was his decision. From there, he worked with Sahadi and, and television folks over there as far as designing the commercial and, and what they saw. And it was their vision along with Vince finally approving the thing and coming up with what we saw. What was your idea? My idea was to promote WrestleMania being the equivalent of the Super Bowl and to display, you know, like do a difference between football players and wrestlers and just build to WrestleMania itself and not, not the uh, main event, obviously, which we didn't, didn't have, wouldn't have been announced at that point yet, but same thing kind of expose the stars, but expose WrestleMania and do the parallel between what the Super Bowl is to football WrestleMania was to the WWF and kind of give that parallel. Why do you think Vince wanted to sort of use this as a branding opportunity instead of an opportunity to plug the pay-per-view because that does seem like a bit of a departure from what he would have chosen just a few years prior brand new audience and felt that the brand new audience may not understand WrestleMania and just wanted to introduce characters, show them the, the extreme diversity in the different characters that we had and also kind of go over the top with maybe how some people viewed wrestling in the WWF by going absurd in a lot of the stuff. Do you remember so, any guys sort of, um, having strong opinions one way or another about being on the show? Jesus, on, they on the were all excited as hell. I think everybody that was involved with it was, was through the moon. Uh, probably the guys that weren't involved with it were going, why not me? Everybody wanted to be in it. So in the end, um, were you pleased with the result? Do you guys screen it together or when do you see it? Oh boy. I saw it in different machinations as it was being produced and as it was being cut. And then the, you know, no, I 
I think the first time a lot of people ever saw it was when it actually aired on the Super Bowl. I had seen it before just because I sat in on a couple different editing sessions and went by and saw the different where it was at different points. But most people, no, they, most of them saw it when it aired. He kept it under wraps. What are the um, the benefits, you know, the rub, so to speak, from having a commercial inside the Super Bowl? Because as you said earlier, you know, certainly the perception is if you have a commercial in the Super Bowl, you have arrived, you've made it. Was there something like that that you could point to, maybe from licensing or some other sort of mainstream conversation or new opportunities that presented themselves because it was such a high profile piece? That's exactly what it was. Yeah. It was for advertising and for being a part of a huge event in American television. I think the Super Bowl or the Oscars are probably the two biggest, you know, where people want to have their advertising and they want to be a part of it. I guess Super my Bowl being is, the biggest. Can you can you point to something and say, because we did the Super Bowl commercial, we got this or we got that? No, I, can, I mean, I think it was just an awareness. I think it was something that got people talking about us, more people. And, and the people inside the industry was going, holy shit, they were on the Super Bowl. People outside the business were, were talking about, hey, did you see that WWF spot? Like, can't think of one thing that, oh, my God, I saw your commercial on the Super Bowl. And we did this. I think it was well, just I, general I, awareness. I didn't necessarily mean that. I just know that on the heels of this, whenever you guys are going to be doing licensing pitches and you know, toys, pitches or whatever, that's going to be part of your presentation. I'm sure Absolutely. if I'm a salesperson, I'm saying you probably saw our Super Bowl commercial because in a, instantly it gives you credibility and lets you know that something's sort of high res or mainstream, or even if you're not in the loop with it, it maybe you're behind because this was in the Super Bowl and everybody knows about this. Why don't you know about this type of thing? Absolutely. I'm sure everybody used that. I mean, that was a touting point. Did you, did you see our Super Bowl commercial? Sure. Without a doubt. Well, I mean, clearly it's working in other areas too. Meltzer wrote a report around the same time that you guys reached an agreement to have your WWF products sold worldwide at amusement parks, fairs, and carnivals. I don't know. Something about WWE stuff finally being sold at carnivals tickles me. Uh, how would a deal like this come together? Who would have been the, the players involved? Well, that's a licensing deal. And that's something that Jim Bell, the guy that got indicted for embezzling all that money, uh, Jim Bell would have, would have done that at this time. And it was a licensing agreement. We were all over the place. We got in Spencer's gifts, which was another big deal to have our, uh, posters and a lot of the t-shirts, the Austin 316 stuff, the rock stuff in Spencer's gifts. We were at every mall in America, uh, all over the place. And that was man licensing. Jesus Christ. If you could put a logo on it, we were on it somewhere. You know, you mentioned, uh, bell and you sort of just slipped in there. Some of our listeners haven't heard that episode. Tell everybody about his embezzlement issue, because we're going to get tons of tweets. If you don't Jim bell, I believe his title was senior vice president of licensing and marketing or something like that. Jim was a smart guy. He came to us from the Muppets. He was the licensing genius behind the Muppets and helped get their brand out there. Um, and he came in and he is the one that really started aggressively getting the WWF brand out there, uh, in the real world and not just relying on merchandise sales and arenas and mail order. Uh, he, like I said, there was a logo to be had and there was room for a logo to be on something. 
by God, he put it on it and he got a lot of stuff done. And then towards the end of his run, we found out that he had uh, allegedly embezzled, or I guess not allegedly, they proved it, that he had embezzled uh, several hundred thousand dollars from some of these deals that went straight to him. And we never knew it. There was so much that it was easy to lose track of some of it. Very. Yeah, very. You would look and sometimes you'd be, I remember, uh, I liked, I like Zippo lighters and I used to collect Zippo lighters. Then I started seeing these, some of the WWF ones and some were licensed. Uh, but the big thing was the Bic lighters that they had done this thing. And I remember bringing that to Vince's attention. There was Bic and cricket. So there were bootleg Wait, things out there. Bic was selling WWF stuff and didn't have a deal with y'all. I don't know which one was, I don't know if it was Bic or if it was cricket, but one of them was. So, and so they're like, the, they're like slapping stone cold's face on shit and selling. Yes. It, and nobody's getting paid. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's what nobody knew. But I remember bringing it up. Vince got hot because he didn't want to have his stuff on lighters. Oh, damn, people smoke. What the hell? I don't want to have. I don't want to be contributing to that. So that is kind of, I I don't know if that was the catalyst to it, but we found out. So why are we on like two different lighters? And then we found out that, you know, some of those weren't, weren't licensed directly through us and, there were sub licenses and it was crazy. I mean, it, it was a, it was a crazy time. I'm sure it was crazy for your legal department too. I mean, it was ceasing to this city over there. Oh God, all over the place. And, and also we had developed a, a security department, uh, for the bootleg side of things, which is, which was crazy. They used to have these sting operations that would rival, um, the biggest drug, kingpins in the world the way that they would swoop in and catch some of the counterfeiters at the arenas man they would they would have people positioned for four blocks all around the arena and they would wait until these bootleggers would come in and when they would start setting their people up they would let them all get up they'd swoop in and they would get as much of their merchandise as they can it was an international um operation on the bootleg side Let's talk a little bit about Steve Austin. Uh, your boy, Vince McMahon would do an interview with Mike Mooneyham, uh, from the Charleston post and courier. And the subject is Steve Austin. And he would describe he being Vince, uh, Steve Austin as very, very smart. His character is very seldom outsmarted and outmaneuvered. And dare I say, that's pretty much the way he is in life. He has been dyed, fried and laid to the side. And I like people like that because he's paid his dues. I believe in paying dues. I pay dues every day. My son and my daughter who are fourth generation, I make sure they pay more dues than anybody else in the company ever did. So a lot to talk about here for him to reference the fact that stone Cold is seldom outsmarted in real life, either trouble in paradise here. No, I don't think so. I just think it was a way events kind of blurring that line and adding reality and fantasy all together. And he's still going to keep you keep that facade of stone cold, Steve Austin out there. Austin would, would often say in his book that he could have been easier to deal with at times. Sometimes creative would come to him and he would say, this sucks. And, but he wouldn't say, 
why don't we do this instead? It would just be, this sucks. Did some of that start in 98 or did it even predate that? You know, from day one, I think Steve, you know, actually I'll go back to the very first meeting where we didn't come to an agreement where Steve decided he didn't want to come to the WWF and went back to WCW. Steve would tell us it sucked. And from day one with the ringmaster and some of the different things that we had done with him, Steve had always been outspoken. The issue that I've always had with Steve and or any other talent, it's great to say it sucks. Give me an alternative. Right. Show, show me a better way to do it. And and if there's a, if your way is better, shit, man, we'll do it. Who cares? But I think that was just Steve's personality. And it, there was, there were times when things were good that he would, it was always really funny. He would get the scripts and walk by and go, yeah, I ain't fucking doing any of this shit. Crumble up the script or throw it, throw it away, tear it up. And then storm into Vince's office and he and Vince would work it out. But that's why so much of what they did was so good because a lot of it was so just off the cuff. What if we go this way? And they would do it in the ring a lot of times. Talk to me about where the line is for Vince with that, because everybody can't do that. I mean, great friend of the show, Mr. Zach Ryder, if he crumples up something that says this fucking sucks and stomps into Vince's office. And he does that for two months in a row. That probably looks a little differently than if Steve Austin's doing it. How do you know when to, when to press and when not to? Well, it's a trust issue at first. I don't think Steve was, was really going to press too much. He would tell you if he didn't like something, he don't, but then again, he would go along with it and do it. I think when it gets to a point that his ideas or his improv, if you will, is better than what was written and it's feeling better. That's a trust issue with Vince. If he trusts you, then he's going to let you go with your gut. Um, and that's his gut telling him to do it. It's so much of the, the detail, the micromanaging, the, the scripting of everything Still, I think a lot of it comes down to gut with Vince. Let's talk about the other line here in the, in the interview, he's talking about his kids and the fact that he makes sure they pay more dues than anybody else ever did. Come on. Oh God. Hell yeah. Dude, the, those guys go through 10 times, a hundred times worse than anybody else in that entire company, the, trust me, they have it harder than anybody. Those that are close to Vince have it 10 hundred times worse than anybody else in the company. The best thing for you is to be arm's length with Vince or hopefully never having a, having a deal with him one-on-one. Everybody thinks, Oh, I want to be next to Vince. Bullshit. You're scrutinized and you are, he's, he expects a hundred times more out of you. The kids, the worst. Linda, the worst. They had it harder than anybody. And then it was me and Pat and Kevin Dunn. Well, if you feel like you've got it harder than anybody, you probably need to try four hymns. You see, 66% of men lose their hair by the age of 35. And thankfully, baldness can be optional thanks to our friends at fourhems.com. You see, they're a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Now, Bruce, you were just telling me the other day that you use four hems to take care of some 
extra things that you needed around the house taken care of. And now everybody at your house is happier and it's because of fourhims.com. Hims is going to connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat your hair loss. And these are well-known generic equivalents to those name brand prescriptions that help you keep your hair, not just some snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Go to fourhims.com, answer a few quick questions and a doctor will review and can prescribe you. And then these products are going to be shipped directly to your door. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward doctor's visits. Fourhims.com can hook you up and we've got a special offer for you right now. Tell them all about it, Bruce. Well, right now our listeners are going to get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See the website for full details. Now, this would cost you hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. And all you have to do is go to 4 slash WWE. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash WWE for hymns.com slash WWE. Let's talk about what got us to this pay-per-view. We'll cover some of the angles and happenings on Monday night. Raw as we get to rock bottom, the November 23rd raw was taped on November 17th. They're still taping raw here. And the taping happened in Columbus, Ohio before a sellout crowd of over 12,000 fans who paid more than $261,000 at the gate. And at the beginning of the show, Vince comes out and announces that commissioner slaughter will be stepping aside. You may remember he just had a boot camp match with triple H the prior year at the December pay-per-view in your house, the generation X. Well, a year later, his time as commissioner has come and gone. Now there's a new commissioner and he says the new commissioner won't answer to him and is going to have free reign except for when it comes to Steve Austin. And he introduces the new commissioner. Mr. Shawn Michaels, who came to the ring wearing a suit and a cowboy hat, playing it up for the fans, grabs the mic and says, there's a new sheriff in town. And he announces the main event of the show is going to be X-Pac challenging the rock for the world title behind the scenes. Shawn Michaels recently visited a back specialist around this time and told him that he could never return to the ring unless he had back surgery. And even then there were no guarantees. On the heels of that news, is that when you guys decide, okay, we got to get him back on TV. Let's just let him do this. Vince wanted him back on TV and Vince wanted to use him. He was getting paid, frankly, and he was staying at home. There was a period where Vince wanted him to just have his rest and his time thinking that if he was able to come back, he would come back at the right time, but things were good. And now it had gotten to the point that Vince was like, damn it. I need to use the little bastard. So he created this as a way to get Sean back on TV, another new old face to come back and utilize him doing something else. So make him a commissioner. He wanted to make him an on-air talent some, somehow, some way. He had been off TV for several months during the summer. We saw him do commentary on raw a few times. And then he'd seemingly just disappear was the original idea. Let's try him as commentator, or were you just trying to find a spot during those instances? And maybe it wasn't the success you hoped. Yeah, really. We were trying to find a spot. The initial, the easy play is, Hey, how would they, with everybody, it feels like, Hey, let's just make them a color commentator. Some guys are not cut out to be a color commentator. No matter how good they are in the ring, you put them behind a mic and try to get them to enhance a match and put other people over. They're not that good on the mic. 
you guys are paying him a boatload. According to Dave Meltzer, I know you don't like to talk about money, but Meltzer would report that he was making $750,000 a year. Can you make a grunt or something one way or another? Well, he was under contract and he was being paid weekly. A lot of cash. Apparently, um, at this point, is there even a discussion of one day we're going to get you back in the ring pal or what's that like right here in, in December of 98. Oh, in December of 98, it was absolutely positively. It was never going to happen. Don't even bring it up. That was from Sean. That was from Vince. Uh, I remember, I remember when, cause I was the dumbass that I'm not good on. Never say never. Um, I brought it up one day. I brought it up when Sean opened up his school in San Antonio. We, I went down there for a few days and Sean and I made several road trips, just the two of us. And I broached that subject and I'll never forget. He was eating a chocolate chip cookie and he says, you know what? I can eat chocolate chip cookies now. And I can't do that if I'm on the road and I'm going to be eating chocolate chip cookies for a long time because my days in the ring are over. I might do one, which he did, which was a street fight with uh, Paul London. No, not Paul London. Uh, Paul Diamond. And swore he'd never be back in the ring. Swore it. And I was, and of course, I got back to Vince and he said, don't, don't bring it up. It's not going to happen. Never. Well, as we know, never is just a handful of years. Uh, let's talk about the uh, show here, uh, because we would see highlights from a house show where Steve Austin is celebrating after a match and he collapses and we find out he's been sent to a medical center. And then later in the show, we see a hospital tending to Austin or see Austin in a hospital being tended to by a doctor rather. And the doctor is telling him, Hey man, you got to take a couple of weeks off. Let's let this concussion heal. And Austin's getting fired up about it. The doctor gives him some pills and he says, Hey, these will help you sleep. And Jr. pipes in and asks Austin how he's feeling. And Austin snaps back something like, like someone hit me in the head with a damn shovel. How the hell do you think I feel? So the reference here is the prior week, Austin is wrestling rock for the title, but the undertaker comes out and hits him in the head with a shovel. Uh, talk to me about this scene where you guys show footage uh, from a house show of Austin collapsing. Cause that's not something you did very often back then. No, but uh, again, shit, as we talked about earlier, house show business was on fire and it was a way to do something outside of the, outside of the confines of that television venue and let you know that, Hey, these guys are out there every night and things are happening that we don't always get to see, but we happen to kept capture this one little glimpse of Steve. So it was a, a different way to continue an angle and do something fun on TV. Uh, later in the show, cameras come back to Austin in the hospital and he's signing an autograph for a nursing assistant. And he flips out when Jr. mentions his match with the undertaker. And as the show goes to a break, a hearse pulls up at the hospital. Uh, later, the cameras cut back to the arena where the undertaker has smothered Austin with a pillow as Paul bear looked on and undertaker tells Paul bear, there's no hurry now as he dragged Austin's motionless body out of the room. And later in the show, we get a shot of the undertaker and Paul bear climbing into the hearse and Jr. screaming. This has gone too far. This has just gone too far. Then we see undertaker and Paul bear pull up to an open grave 
An undertaker pulls Austin from the hearse and starts digging the grave deeper. Austin wakes up and starts choking bear. So undertaker puts Austin back in the chokehold till he passes out. And he tells bear that burying him alive would be too good for him. And he says that bear should embalm him alive instead. And then we see undertaker carry Austin over his shoulder into an embalming room and bear puts on plastic gloves and a plastic gown preparing. And after a break, Austin lays on the table with his shirt cut open and a pair of scissors lying on his chest and undertaker tells Austin, he hopes he could hear him because the pain he was about to experience is worse than he could ever imagine. And then the undertaker starts chanting in tongues and slowly raises this large dagger like knife that he's going to use to slice open Austin's chest. And wouldn't you know it, just as he's ready to lower the knife, Kane barges in and they start brawling. Bear picks up the scissors, attempts to stab Steve Austin. Austin wakes up and stops him. Okay. That all really happened on Monday night. Raw <laughs> in one episode in a single show. <laughs> Chat me up. Oh, fuck me. Yeah. Things were a little wild, man. Russo had a hell of an imagination. I, I tell you a lot of that too. A lot of this, um, <laughs> Came from the head of the Undertaker too, and and those guys getting out there and Vince being crazy. <laughs> That's about the best I can say. What if we embalmed him alive? <laughs> um, Seriously, why not? What the fuck is this? Yeah, it's good shit, is what it is. When's the last time you saw live embalming? Nineteen ninety eight, bitch. Uh, That's when. <laughs> 1998 bitch that's when that's the line yeah. of the day let's shut it down we're not beating that line there you go seriously man but you know you're a long way from dory funk jr here who you grew up on what, what are you thinking as you're seeing all this come together i used to love to sit there and watch it with um I, I always, when there was something real crazy, I used to love to have Jerry Briscoe or, or some old timer, Jack Lanz, or just somebody next to me, just so I can say, "Let's finish, kid." <laughs> you know, I'll move. Uh, the business had come a long way. The times were changing, and I think that as old timers, a lot of, a lot of times, and I'll throw myself in there. You look at it and go, "What the fuck?" It was entertainment. It was it was Gaga. It was different. And you either got on board or you didn't. So enjoy it and get out there with them. When did you come around to get on board? I mean, is this something you're on board with right away or, or do you feel some pushback internally? Like, are you thinking, fuck, I don't know if this is a good idea or because it's, you know, Vince's idea. You're just, Oh, it's great. Mr. Backman. I love it. No. And I, the problem was, is I would always say, yeah, I don't think this is a great idea. And I would take the ass chewing if, you know, that was to come. But uh, I was the other side where I would usually say, not sure about this one. And what if, and take the ass chewing. Once it was decided by Vince's, how we're going to go, I'm on board 100%. Yeah. You got to be. At when, that it first, point. when it first comes out, I, I had the reputation that, which is just, that's why it's so funny when you hear about the yes men and a, I was the one that would always go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, listen, I know, from work, my day. I know from working with you, that's not true. Like even in my personal life, I'll call you and say, Hey man, shit on this. 
Cause if I'm looking for somebody to shit on an idea, all I got to do is dial your number and I'll shit on it. Won't I? Oh God. A lot of times you don't even ask me to have to shit on it and I'll shit on it. I barely finished the idea and you're just shitting all over it. <laughs> so I know that it's easy for you to shit, which is why it's just hard for me to imagine. <laughs> oh, that's true. You know, it is. Yeah. So, and that's the way, I mean, you were with me all week. Oh yeah. What the fuck? Um, so yeah, but again, once it's, once it's time to go, I'm on board, man. Let's go. Hey, once the decision's made, well, I'm, I'm all for it. You remember that time Wahoo McDaniel and Dory Funk Jr. Went to the embalming room with daggers. Yeah. I like to bring that up, you know, all the time and just say, huh? What if remember that time Jerry Lawler dug a hole? He dug a lot of them. <laughs> Maybe too many. Um, yeah. Is this, is this the most out there Russo idea at the time? Or, I mean, can you, I'll be honest. I kind of didn't even remember that any of this happened. I had blocked it out. Seriously? Oh t- God, no, you can't block some of this shit out. Well, I mean, I, I, th- I think I like the symbol more than I do this. And I, I just remember thinking, what the fuck is that? But with this, when you read this, back, <laughs> holy cow. Well, I enjoyed it because it was so true to the Undertaker character and Paul Bear and, and Paul actually embalmed people for a living. So that part of it, you know, intrigued me. I liked it because I'm going, okay, well, this could logically happen. Um, I just said this could logically happen and I got nothing. Okay. Uh, Cause I'm not, I'm not selling it. I'm not, I'm just letting it ride, baby. Yeah. Um, so, but I liked it. I, I liked the Undertaker stuff part of it, which is probably why. Why well, I could try it on a little bit better, but this, to me, this was, um, a whole lot less than what was to come with the, the human sacrifice of Midian. To me, that was, that was the breaking point for me. <laughs> now, if we're going to embalm somebody, that's fine. But if we're going to sacrifice them, well, now that's too damn far. Sac- the sacri- the sacrifice. Vice and the levitation was just a little too much for me. <laughs> everything else I'm fine with, man. I'm cool with everything else. You can embalm the motherfucker alive. We're going to have a buried alive match, all that other shit. But goddamn it, if some bitch going to levitate and be humanly sacrificed live on TV, that's just too damn far. Let's get to our main event. As I mentioned, uh, Shawn Michaels set up his buddy, X Pac, with a title shot against The Rock. Uh, the finish sees the rock grab a chair, but Sean takes it from him, teases hitting rock, but then nails X-Pac revealing his alliance with Vince. The rock hits the corporate elbow scores the pin. And now Sean is celebrating with Vince and the rest of the corporation. So Sean comes back, big pop. Everybody's happy to see him. And immediately he's aligned with the heels. Why was that the right call for the swerve, bro? Cause later on, Sean was going to turn baby face on Vince. And that was, I guess that was their idea for that, that ultimate build to that ultimate swerve. Bro. I mean, did it ever feel like a swerve for the sake of a swerve on some of these decisions? I mean, was that yes. really the answer? Just, Hey, they won't see it coming. Yes. You know, Eric Bischoff has talked about unpredictability being one of the big factors that really helped Nitro succeed. And he felt like when he did. Uh, testing with fans. And, you know, we've, we've heard about this before, but 
he would really go do focus groups and what they would say, the reports would show that that's what they really wanted was unpredictability. Did you ever feel like you guys were taking it too far in this era where we're just swerving for the sake of swerve? There is no big payoff. It's just, well, they won't see it coming. So we'll do that. Yes. And I think that, and I, and I believe in, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases we were playing to the smallest uh, minority of the audience. Do you so, think, do you think they're doing that now? I don't know. I think that right now they're, I don't know what the fuck they're doing right now. I don't think anybody they're, else does either. You know, it, it's to me right now, I'm not feeling, and I tried to watch, uh, when I got home from just jet lag, like a motherfucker. And I tried to watch raw from last week that I missed. And I just, um, I don't know that there's just enough different character development. It all takes place in the ring or backstage and there's, there's nothing taking me out of the arena. There's nothing showing me more about who these people are than a promo and a match. I think that's, what's missing. I think that, you know, going and embalming someone alive in a funeral parlor, in a cemetery at least gets me out of the arena and gives me a reason to go, what the fuck is this? And, and the swerve shit, um, I just for swerve purposes means nothing after a while. I need you to be careful because if we're not careful, Baron Corbin's going to be embalming someone next week. Well, I, that would at least be interesting. I don't know about that. Well, would you, okay, hang on. Would you rather see him, uh, embalm someone or go cut another live promo? Oh, those are my only two options. Those are your only two options. I'm going to go with promo or a 30 minute match promo. It is. I'd rather have him embalm someone. Okay. If match is an option, I'll go with match. Can I pick his opponent too? No. Okay. So this raw does a 4.86 nitro does a 4.5 around the same time. Um, you guys are on the cover of TV guide as is WCW. Of course, WCW doesn't even mention that they have guys on the cover of the TV guide. But you guys are playing it up for all it's worth on TV, showing the Austin and Undertaker covers. And then JR is even mentioning that uh, if those copies are sold out, you may have to wind up buying a copy with the retired Hulk Hogan or the Steve Austin wannabe Bill Goldberg on the cover. This is a big deal for you guys to be on the cover of TV Guide. And we've talked about this before, but it happened a few times. TV Guide in this era is really a big deal. Television listings uh, at the time made the newspaper every day, but TV God is the only thing you could get that would be extended. And this is before DVRs, you know, some cable systems had one channel that would sort of list what was on everything. You'd go to that channel, figure out what you wanted and then switch over. It, it feels like a lifetime ago, but how massive was it that you guys were on TV God? And how critical of a mistake was it for WCW not to play it up on their side? Well, on WCW's side, that they ignored that shit and they didn't know how to promote themselves. They they couldn't get out of their own way in a lot of respects. As far as TV Guide goes, I don't know if it was the most subscribed magazine in the world, but if it's not, it probably should have been. Everyone had a TV Guide. And if you didn't have a TV Guide, if you shopped anywhere there was a TV guide at the checkout counter. 
in every store, in every grocery store, in every convenience store. They were everywhere. So everyone saw TV Guide. It was just a, a huge billboard and probably the most uh, – at one time it was touted as the single most read magazine in the world. That's why I went with the subscription thing. But it, it was everywhere, and it was the most recognizable magazine in the world by far. I want to mention here that the story would list the WWF as a $500 million per year company. And Meltzer would categorize that claim as a myth that was even bought by Forbes magazine when they listed Titan sports at number 475 in the list of the 500 biggest privately owned companies in the country. And allegedly the WWF is claiming 500 million in revenue, 475 million in expenses. Meltzer is going to say, realistically, it's probably closer to 200, not 500, but it's been said often enough that people are printing it. I know you take issue with basically everything Meltzer says, but do you think in 1998, you guys were a $500 million company in 1998? Yeah, we were probably close to that. Yes. And, and again, what the hell would he have to know? Well, how does he know? How does he know all the licensing deals and all the television deal? He doesn't. He's looking at crowd. He's looking at what he thinks TV deal. He doesn't know any of that. We weren't a publicly held company. There was nothing for him to go and look and see on any of that shit. So there's, there is no way for him to know. But you, and you believe in your heart of hearts when we're talking about these gates at, you know, 150, $200,000, whatever they are, add them all up, throw in your pay-per-views. Obviously you've got some licensing, blah, blah, blah. You're north of $40 million a month on average. You believe that? I I don't know what I honestly I don't know what it was, but I know it was probably more than two three hundred million. Yeah. Okay, but five hundred we agree seems kind of high, and that's just maybe some puffery. It might be a little puffery, but I but it was it sure as hell wasn't under two hundred. Oh, I, I'm not arguing that. I mean, I don't think anybody. Well, what do you what do you say? One hundred and seventy five or something? No, he says it was in the two hundred million range. Yeah. It was definitely over two hundred million. And I would, I would probably say it was closer to the 400 million, but again, I, and again, just like Dave Meltzer, I don't know either because I I don't know all of those figures. However, I do know a lot of them. And when you add them all up and take all of the international, um, business that we were doing, international business was huge. The licensing deals from television, but also all the merchandise and everything else out there. It was huge. And it was and it was coming in hand over fist, you know, so much so that, you know, we we were missing, <laughs> you know, millions of dollars that people were able to siphon off and, and do different things. If it was if you were to take into account some of the deals that had been done going back to the video days, it may have reached that 500 million. I don't know. But, but again, to take, to sit here and say, I know exactly what we did. I don't. And neither does Dave Meltzer. Interesting quote here from Steve Austin inside that story TV God wrote. I can't say that I agree with every storyline we have. Every time you hear some racism or a bunch of the sexual stuff, that's a complete turnoff for me. What do you think of that quote? Well, that was Steve and he did and he made it known. Steve, Steve didn't like the, the sexual content on the show at all. And he, he let it be known. So that, that wasn't too far. That well, wasn't far from the human being at all. Um, but it's funny. He was, he was fine <laughs> with his cursing and drinking beer and all his shit. 
Um, but that was the human being, Steve. And I don't think that that was something that a lot of people, that opinion was shared by a lot of people in the industry and outside of the industry. Another that, was part, more, that was more Steve Williams at the time than Steve Austin. Another quote that caught my attention comes to us from Vince McMahon. Uh, Meltzer would say this was probably the most shocking thing in here. Quote, McMahon's cavalier attitude towards illegal steroid use. Here's what Vince said. Quote, if we found a syringe filled with steroids, we'd say, what the hell are you doing? But the audience doesn't give a damn. No one cares. End quote. What do you make of that quote from Vince? The audience didn't care. I, I mean, there, there's nothing to make of it. I, I really and truly don't think that the audience gave a shit. Does the audience care when uh, Brad Pitt goes from 130 pounds to 190 pounds to get ready for a role in a movie? They don't. They go, oh, my God, what kind of training regiment is he on? I don't think that the audience, I don't think that they cared then. I'm not sure they care now. It's not an actual athletic competition. It's entertainment. Isn't it amazing how little people really know or care? I mean, I hear people talk all the time about different guys, not just, not just wrestlers, but in other areas where all of a sudden someone's over 40 and goes from average to Jack to the gills and no, no one even says anything, uh, you know, they're just, it's complimentary. I, I'm with you. I don't think they really care. Yeah. I, I just think that that people want to be entertained and they don't care what someone's personal life or what they're doing to attain that. And what people leave out a lot of times is, um, Hey, Conrad and I could take all the steroids in the world. <laughs> It ain't going to make any fucking difference. <laughs> ain't going to make that big of a difference if we're not eating properly and training hours upon hours in the gym every day. So people forget about that. They forget about the, yeah. the sacrifice that these guys have to go through to maintain the bodies that they have. Yeah. I think a and, lot of people assume that it's just, you know, you stick a needle in your ass and you look like Hulk Hogan and that's not reality. That's, that's not reality. That's hours and hours in the gym for years and years and years and eating lean chicken breast and dry pasta. So let's talk about the, uh, the, the way they sort of wrap up this story with TV guide. They say that, uh, the rumors of steroid use may have added to wrestling's mystique, which I think is funny. And, um, it said that Bischoff was sketchy about WCW's testing program. And McMahon said the WWF only tests when they detect signs of abuse. Uh, do you remember what the official policy was here in 1998? In 98, I think we were at the random testing and he was testing for, I, I don't know if we were even testing for pot at that time. But I know that drugs, drugs of abuse, I think, I don't, God, I don't even remember, but I think it was drugs of abuse and illegal, illegal drugs. So if you were getting a prescription, for example, of a muscle relaxer and you were abusing them, then if you had too much in your system, they would test you for that and different things. I, but to be 100% accurate, I couldn't tell you what the fuck the drug testing was in this period in 1998. It would evolve so many times throughout the years. 
rumor and innuendo is these days, if you fail for marijuana, it's a $2,500 fine. Have you heard that? Well, that's up from, I think you started out as a thousand dollar fine. Okay. Um, is it, is it true that one of the things you guys did for testing once upon a time is she was established, I believe the term is a baseline. And so they're just getting a, a sort of an idea of where your levels are. And even if your levels are elevated, as long as they're in that range, they're going to assume it's just business as usual. But when something goes way high or way low, that's when they throw the flag. For steroids, they did do a baseline test as far as if you had been taking steroids, they would test you and say, okay, here's where you are. Don't go over this. And if you're, they would have wanted to see those levels, if there were levels of steroids decrease actually. So if they decrease, they, there wasn't any alarm, but that was their baseline was my understanding that here's your baseline. You cannot. You know, if you go above this and obviously you're using, but we need to see you come down. Um, Wade Keller has a couple of notes in his newsletter about the rock. I want to cover with you here. Um, it's written Vince McMahon wanted Rocky Mavia to literally bend over and kiss his ass on raw the day after the title win at survivor series rock, put up a fuss and eventually McMahon gave in. And there's already a mild undercurrent of locker room snickering at rocks inflating ego since winning the gold. Not only is he seen as overly concerned about looking foolish, even though the heels are supposed to quote show ass, but he created a scene of sorts at a locals goals gym two weeks ago during the California swing, a local goals gym popular with the boys presented the rock with a leather golds jacket in honor of him winning the WWF title. And they wanted to take a picture of him with the WWF belt and a gold's gym t-shirt, but he refused to switch shirts and he was wearing a shirt for the competition world's gym. And the feeling in the locker room as a third year wrestler who had a lot thrown at him so quickly, isn't handling the attention like a veteran would. And he's since been forgiven and considered a good guy who will mature quickly into his role. So quickly the rock is thrown into this, um, whirlwind of success. You know, he debuts at survivor series, 1996 fast forward, two years later, he's the champ and maybe he was a little concerned. Maybe he didn't really know how to navigate these waters. What do you make of these two stories? Okay. Well, let's address the kissing his ass thing first. That was brought up. That actually was brought up and it wasn't rock. It was a lot of people, um, including myself, Pat Patterson, Jerry Briscoe. There, there were a lot of people that felt that if you do that to him right now, that is, it's going to kill him. It's going to kill him as a heel. It's going to kill him as a competitor from this vantage point. Exactly what you just said. He's two years in. We don't know what exactly what we have here. We feel we've got lightning in a bottle. Let's expound on that. Let's, let's go there. And it was everyone else that had that reaction I think that because they didn't do it, there's probably a segment of the locker room who's already jealous of the kid who's come in and in two years is on top of the world. Sure. Who already has good looking son of a bitch. He walks through like he's king shit because he was king shit. Yeah. But a nicer guy you couldn't find. And from the day that he started to today, you pretty much have the same guy. He never really got a big head. He was nice to everybody, but I think that there was still a jealousy of, Oh, fuck him. He's only been in the business two years and I've been in it for 
10 years or I've been in it for 15 years. Why aren't they pushing me like they're pushing him? Look at him getting all this shit. Um, as far as the Gold's Gym thing, I have no idea. I, w- I wasn't there. I heard the rumblings about it. I think it's stupid. Uh, I really don't know. It was probably a made-up story with much ado about nothing. I know you don't want to bury anybody, but I can't help it. Uh, give me an idea of a type of guy who may have been bellyaching about the the push that the Rock's getting. Oh, God, I think that it could be everybody on the roster, really. Anybody that had been there any length of time, any veteran, would look at him and go, Jesus Christ, man, why, why this kid? I've been busting my ass here for all these years. That It was a general feeling in the locker room when a lot of any new guy coming in, man, there was, there was resentment against Bret Hart almost for the opposite. When we made Bret Hart champion, the resentment towards Bret was what the fuck, man? He's been a mid card tag team guy, his whole career. Why is he getting the belt? I've been sitting, you know, it's whoever's on top, whoever is achieving success at the time, those that are not achieving that success and feel that it's due them are going to complain and bitch and say, oh, that should have been me. So that, in my opinion, that's what was going on at the time. As far as dealing with Dwayne Johnson during that time, it was the same Dwayne Johnson that had walked in and had his tryout in Houston, Texas, all those years ago and busted his ass in the warehouse and then got over like died first went out and shit the bed died. I mean, they were chanting die Rocky die and then returned to make the most of it and became successful. And I just think it was jealousy more than anything else. And people looking for anything to hang their hat on. Let's fast forward to November 30th. It's uh, raw from Baltimore, another sellout more than 11,000 fans. There, $243,000 at the gate. You, Michael Cole, Jim Cornette, and Kevin Kelly come ringside to do announcing for shotgun. You remember this ragtag bunch? Four dudes. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. A two man booth is about as much as you need. Three man is can be okay. Four man is a train wreck. Didn't last long. It just went, it eventually was just me and Kevin Kelly. Austin is shown backstage on raw He's carrying a shovel here and he looks inside of a meat freezer for the undertaker and Paul bear, but they come from behind and push him in and lock him inside the freezer. So now he's going to freeze to death. Uh, X-Pot comes out and calls out Sean. Well, well, he is stone cold for all the credits. We're not beating it. (laughs) If you, if you like silly puns, let me tell you a ton of them over at brucepritchard.com and boxofgimmicks.com. Some of the silliest shit you can ever imagine over there. And when you pick up a shirt, eventually Bruce is going to call and thank you. Uh, X-Pac comes out and calls out Shawn Michaels, uh, angry about Shawn costing him his match against the rock last week. And Michaels threatens him with uh, sending him back to that money pit in Atlanta, but refuses to fight him because he's not an active wrestler. So instead he books X-Pac in a match with Ken Shamrock with the European title being on the line. And he leaves to the DX music because he says he was DX before DX was cool in that match. Uh, Shamrock beat X-Pac by DQ. Sean would distract the ref and boss man would close, uh, close on X-Pac after he had done the X-Pac finisher on Shamrock and Shamrock puts the ankle lock on, but Helmsley returns to a big pop and attacks Shamrock for the DQ. 
What do you think of this Sean Michael sort of feuding with DX storyline? Well, the average, I think everybody, when he came back thought, oh, well, he's automatically going to DX. So instead we swerve him, bro, until the right time. And it was, uh, just a miscue for the, for the audience or a misdirect, not a miscue a misdirect for the audience. Later in the show, we see Shane McMahon come out with Sable to promote the new WWF cologne and perfume. Shane starts looking down her top and she sprays cologne in his eyes. Chat me up about this cologne and perfume. How would Jim Cornette describe it? Goddamn shit stuck like shit. Almost like my goddamn triple cheeseburger, triple cheese, extra onion, double mayo, motherfucker. Uh, when we get to it, man, in, in the show, there was a great cologne commercial, which had George Germanakos, who I believe is still working, uh, behind the scenes at the WWE and Adam Panucci, who is the new superstar producer, man. Great. Absolutely great producer who replaced David Sahadi doing all those packages and opens. And they do the two cool cats strumming the, the bass guitar in there and, uh, hitting the bongos. So some of those cologne ads were pretty entertaining. You like that commercial? Oh, I love that commercial. That was fucking awful. Oh dude, it's campy. It's fucking great. Even now. 20 years later, it's even better. I didn't like it. You know, I loved it. Okay. Um, the show ends with uh, Steve Austin and Kane cornering Paul Bearer, and Austin is about to stab him in the chest, but <laughs> changes his mind. And instead, they drag him out of the arena and throw him into a manhole. And the show ends with Bearer supposedly in the sewer. That part feels like a Vince McMahon idea. Oh boy. You know, the funniest part was Paul barely fit in that damn manhole. And then Vince was like, maybe we grease him up and get him in there. Um, yeah, that was definitely a Vince McMahon idea. I know we'll put him in the manhole and Paul's looking at it thinking, damn, Paul, Paul's a big guy. Didn't have good knees. Wasn't athletically inclined. And going down on these rusty old, you know, manhole steps. Yeah, it's definitely. Been Hang on. He was going down old rusty old man. He was going down on old rusty old manholes, manhole steps. My you know, like God. The little, it was like the little things coming out of the wall. I went down it to make sure it was safe and it would support me and support Paul. That's what I told him. He looked at me and fuck you. Yeah. He was fine. I just don't even know. I mean, we got motherfuckers in manholes. We're we're putting people in freezers. We're about to stab people in the chest. I mean, why didn't he come out and manage the Ninja Turtles after this? Well, that was discussed. We we talked about that, but, uh, we wanted to be a more, little bit more unrealistic because everybody would have expected that. That's not, that's not being, uh, swervy unpredictable. I guess we should mention raw here gets a 5.0 nitro gets a 4.25, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, Keller would report early Monday afternoon, Billy Gunn threw his rental car keys out the driver's side window towards road dog. So he could open the trunk of their car. The keys though, hit the car and bounced into a nearby gutter. They could see the keys about 10 feet down. And rather than call the rental car company for replacement keys, Billy Gunn yanked the gutter cover up. 
jumped into the gutter, retrieved his keys. Did that story, which was the talk of the locker room for a few minutes, inspire the Paul Bear manhole drop, or was it simply a coincidence? <laughs> simply a coincidence. But I will tell you one thing, Billy Gunn is one strong son of a bitch. Alrighty. Doesn't seem like a coincidence, but I'll take your word for it. Um after this show, Dan Rodericks and the Baltimore Sun ran a column on attending the raw tapings in Baltimore a few weeks back, and he said that when the oddities came out, the WWF actually ignited a device that emitted a sewage like stench only noticeable to ringsiders to make it as if the oddities don't bathe. What was interesting about the column is it's one of the first mainstream columns that didn't really talk about real versus fake as opposed to entertainment. Uh, but the idea that you guys pumped out duty smells is something that I had never heard before. I thought I had seen the oddities yeah. live, but I didn't know that you guys were pumping in duty smells. We weren't pumping in duty smells. That's the only time we ever did smelling is when we did the, uh, the shit, drop. Did the shit stuff. Yeah. And we, we broke the, the sulfur stuff in the around ringside. Maybe the oddities just were extra ripe that night. So you can confirm that this story is inaccurate. You did not pump in doo-doo smells. We didn't pump in doo-doo smells. I don't know why that's so funny. Uh, the Austin story. In the new issue of Rolling Stone is a must read. According to Dave Meltzer, uh, he says, perhaps the best story of all the recent mainstream media blitz, it was far more in depth than most recent wrestling and why it's really popular. And that the WWF is re telling really sleazy stories. Uh, did you, I mean, was this copy of Rolling Stone passed around? Do you remember that? No, I, I don't remember it. I know I read it. Um, way back in the day, 20 fucking years ago. But I remember the guy, I want to say this is the guy that spent, this was tough to pull off too. It was trying to get Steve to a open up and the Rolling Stone guy wanted access for a couple of weeks or something, just two weeks of writing with Steve and going to the arena with him, spending time at his home and all this. Well, first of all, the writer you know, didn't want to travel as much as Steve was traveling at the time. And then Steve didn't want anybody riding with him and didn't, didn't want somebody at his home and didn't, didn't want all of this access. Steve's a very private guy. Um, I remember it was difficult to even get them together, but to me it was, I thought it was a good read. They covered Steve Austin in depth spend some time with him drinking Coors Light and on the shooting range and riding around, listening to heavy metal, talk about his life in school and how he came up in the business and the WCW years and how he got his name, the whole deal. But it is sort of a, an in-depth look at Steve Austin that you guys didn't often allow. Why did Rolling Stone get the green light for this? It feels like something Vince would have, I mean, did you guys demand some sort of editorial control if you allowed something like this to happen might have asked for it uh but i don't think that we got it and it was it just was the access was the main thing that took it so long to actually get done for the guy we didn't want him and he wanted to go to production meetings he wanted to be with, around steve all the time that's not access that anybody gets 
That's not access that that the, that the Hollywood people right now. That's what they want, and they can't get it. Um, Vince wasn't willing to to open that up, but they did kind of give him access, and the guy did come spend some time with Steve at home, and it was Rolling Stone. You know, I want to get my picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone and buy five copies for my mother. Um, that's a big deal. And Steve, in pop culture, Steve was it at the time. You know, we're just talking about mainstream coverage one after another. How's this for something I didn't think I'd ever talk about. Vince McMahon spoke at Oxford university in a library setting in front of a few hundred students on December 3rd. And the highlights of this speech actually aired on raw. And when he comes out, he gets a reception, but then complains about it and says, maybe that would be good enough for a prime minister, but they could do better for him. And he got a bigger ovation. Uh, Vince McMahon speaking at Oxford. We've come a long way. Have we not? No shit. I never forget when Vince told us, <laughs> God damn it. I'm speaking at Oxford. They'd never let me in. Um, I was a kick in the ass. That was a pretty damn big deal. But for Mr. McMahon to go there and they gave him some kind of honorary, uh, bullshit deal. While he was there and he was, he was actually inside. I think he was tickled pink to go do that. That was a big fuck you to the establishment that Oxford would invite him to come and speak. Along the way, while you're over there, you guys draw a sellout crowd for capital carnage, your pay-per-view in London, England on December 6th. It drew the equivalent of $412,000 us. Uh, these shows are not known for the best matches, but there is something in here. That's kind of fun. Tiger Ali Singh pinned edge in three minutes using the ropes for leverage. That's a, it's even hard to defend 20 years later. Is it not? God, it was hard to defend then. Uh, you but, also, go ahead. Yeah, no, man. Vince, Vince wanted that, that Indian superstar. Uh, heel babyface didn't care, man, and felt that that Tiger and Tiger Jeet Singh had pumped so much bullshit and everybody that that Tiger Junior, you know, was this huge star over there. Um, yeah, drizzling shits. No, I, I couldn't defend it then. I was against it then, and I'm still against it. Shane McMahon was the ring announcer for the main event. Pat Patterson's the timekeeper. Uh, boss man is ringside as the corporate enforcer and Briscoe was the referee for Steve Austin, getting a win in a four-way match with the undertaker Kane and rock just before that the rock beat X-Pac There's a triple H run in here. So there's some DQs involved. Uh, the new age outlaws retain their tag titles, uh, beating D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry. Um, Hunter Hearst Helmsley got a win over Jeff Jarrett in eight minutes. And there's a fun, I guess I should mention this too. Shamrock beat Steve Blackman on there to retain the IC. Uh, but there is a fun, two fun, interesting things on here. Besides that tiger, all sing match, the rock does an interview where he pretends to forget his own catchphrases and instead starts talking about saying his prayers and eating to be the man you got to beat. I'm the best there is the best there was. That's the bottom line because that's pretty funny pretty creative stuff. And, and one of the first times we saw that in a big way from him, but the thing that I have looked forward to for almost two years now, this is the match, or this is the show where we see Sable and Christian on one side, Jacqueline and Mark Merrow on the other. Here's the last line in the observer. Jacqueline's strap of her top was pulled down by Sable and her breasts fell out. 
star and a half. Meanwhile, in the back though, when Vince McMahon saw this, he probably gave it seven stars and yelled chocolate titties. Yum. For everybody who doesn't know and hasn't heard exactly what the fuck we're talking about. Maybe a first time listener. Tell everybody how in the world Jacqueline's breast being exposed got the green light. We're in the UK. There's titties all over the UK. Uh, we were we were in prime time. We were nationally televised at the time. This was UK only. Um, it was pay-per-view and all the shit. New thing in the UK, so on and so forth. But there's a lot of sexuality in, in the mirror, man. You got naked women all over the place. So Vince, for a little sexuality, thought, well, if we can give them some frontal nudity, just top, not full frontal nudity, um, and asked Jacqueline if, if she would be up for it. And she, she was fine with it, and she was willing to do it. And that is the only planned nudity that we ever did. So contrary to popular belief and all the myths and all the other bullshit out there, um, that was the only one that was ever planned to be on TV. That I know of. <sighs> How did he pitch it? Well, Jacqueline, everyone loves titties and everyone loves chocolate. With you, we get chocolate titties and they're going to love it. And they did. There we go. The December 7th Raw, we see Hunter, X-Pac, and China come out to start the show. And Hunter says if the Outlaws had made a business decision to join Team Corporate, at least have the balls to tell us to our faces. They come out wearing suits and ties. Road Dog starts his pre-match spiel, but instead says Vincent K. McMahon is proud to present Road Dog Esquire and Badass Incorporated. Then he introduces Shawn Michaels and all three enter the ring. What do you remember about this segment? God, not a lot. Cause there was just so, you know, there was just so many swerves and curves and everything. So often would you would do something one week and the next week, it just didn't matter. So this was a, an attempt of a lot of times just to throw shit against the wall and throw it out there and see what people retain. And that's for me, that's how much I remember about it. Well, you see Hunter and, uh, Michael's confronting each other where Michael says, um, he owes Hunter for riding his coattails and Hunter said he owes Michael's because he was wearing a title belt. He didn't deserve. And he said, no one cared when Michael's lost the belt. Then everyone starts laughing. Uh, Sean's breaking character here. According to the observer and steps away from the ring, looks at a piece of paper in his jacket and then returns to the ring to continue the interview. So, uh, it is what it is, but it's setting up Hunter and X-Pac against boss man, Shamrock later on raw in a no rules match. And he says, it's okay. If the outlaws interfere, Steve Austin comes out, says he's not going to show mercy for the undertaker at rock bottom. And they announced our television main event for tonight as undertaker and rock against Austin and mankind. The lights go off and undertaker said he'd send Austin to purgatory later on raw, but permanent hell at rock bottom, which is kind of fun, I guess. Then a huge undertaker logo appears above the Titan Tron. And then it burst into flames. 
the inflammable uh, liquid brushed onto the logo, dripped onto the rampway and dripped through to the grating on the arena floor, which also caught on fire where workers were then scurrying around with fire extinguishers trying to put out the flames. What do you remember about this? I love that. I love that the outside viewpoint is workers were scurrying around to put out the, the flames. Um, that's just shit that happens. Those were actual people that were pyro people that were ready for the flames. We knew it when we rehearsed it, there was just no, they would paint this flammable substance on whatever it is you want to go up. But once it gets hot and if you put too much of it on to get the big kind of flames that we wanted, the shit drips. And, and that was just a hazard of the goo of the fire goo. Uh, and we learned that the very first time when Kane came out, when we painted the chain link fence with the goo, the goo's going to drip and the goo's going to catch everything on fire that it touches. So we were ready for it. There was an excellent commercial transition right there, but they're not sponsoring us this week. So let's move I on. I know Austin and mankind fought the rock and undertaker to a no contest. Uh, I guess we should catch you up here. This is the match where three Druids come out during the match. The undertaker logo that was burning earlier is now lowered. Um, they attack mankind and handcuff him to the corner. And then Austin gets a chair shot to get knocked out from the undertaker. And then they strap his lifeless body to this logo or the symbol as they would call symbol. it symbol with his head bowed and tilted. And then the logo, the symbol is raised as all these Druids are chanting. Maybe one of the more controversial decisions you guys ever made. What can you tell me about this? Extremely got a lot of feedback on it because people didn't understand the symbol. Okay. And here's the thing. What is a cross? A cross is just a symbol. That's all it is. It's just a symbol. You take it as a symbol of whatever you want to take it as the undertaker symbol. It's just a symbol. You take it as a representation of the undertaker, however it is that you want to take it. And if there was any confusion as to what it was, go back and listen to the commentary. I think Michael Cole says the word symbol, no less than probably three dozen times. Yeah. I was going to say 30 times minimum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at the symbol, the symbol of the undertaker. Austin, the symbol is the symbol of the symbol. Um, pretty controversial, but we, we knew that beforehand and we, we felt that it's, it is a symbol. It's not religious. It's, it's a symbol of the undertaker and people are going to take it that way. They're going to take it that way. And then people that don't, they're not. So that's all you can do at that point and defend it till the, the end of time. It really doesn't matter. Um, was what it was. You were against it. Uh, it was indifferent. I did bring, I see you're talking to somebody who dressed up in a white suit and red shirt and said, I love you. So to me, it didn't bother me a bit. I did bring up that it may bother some people because I remember the reaction I got. I didn't do religion. I did love, but people still took it as being blas blasphemous and that I was doing religion. I never did religion, never said anything that would make you think I was doing religion, but the presentation led people to say I was mocking religion. We didn't do religion. We didn't do anything that would make you think we were doing religion. However, the presentation made you feel that we were mocking religion in the crucif 
crucifixion. I mean, that's so I'm not a good one to ask on that. Didn't bother me a bit. Okay. What was the feedback you got? You said you got a lot of negative feedback. Did you get any from any of the boys? Did anybody object when you guys were walking through it that day? No one that openly said anything that I can remember. No, I do remember the feedback after the fact from the audience. I think there was a minority of people and it really was a minority, but it was a loud minority that felt that it was a, uh, blasphemous, same thing. I mean, it was blasphemous and it was mocking religion and people were upset about it. Anything else you want to mention on this? Uh, I don't know what else there is. I mean, they're, they're other than, other than Canada, I don't know anybody that edited it out. And, uh, for the most part, you know, we went on with our business. We re- replayed it a lot and there wasn't any backlash from it where people said, Oh my God, I'm never going to watch again or any shit like that. It was controversial. It was meant to be controversial and it was meant to get people talking and it did. Did the rock, not the rock. Did the undertaker say anything afterwards? Like, did he have a strong opinion one way or another, or when there's a pushback, does he have a comment? I think he brought up the concerns. Uh, you know, everybody brought up the concerns. Everybody brought up to, you know, they're going to say we're doing a, this is crucifix and that we're crucifying him. Everybody's going to say that. And Vince had his argument. It's not, this is a, this is a symbol and this is how we're going to present it. And we're not going to present it in that way. Okay. I'll do it. Um, but undertaker, you know, was company guy and he, he got it. He accepted Vince's explanation and went through it and did it to, did it all the way, man. So did Austin. So I think that you, you, you express your concerns. You say, Hey, here's what I think. He says, thank you for your, uh, thoughts. Thank you for your opinion. Here's what we're going to do. And here's why, and here's how we're going to present it. Okay. Austin, you know, admittedly not a fan of sexual stuff or racism was his opinion of this. I think that he had the same concerns of, of beforehand looking at it and saying, you know, God damn, man, how's this going to be, you know, on me? Am I, am I being the same thing? Everybody else did everything, everything I've been saying. It was, it was the concern in front and concern afterwards, you know, when you get the backlash, because the, the people that the people that complain and the people that tell you it's bad are always going to be the loudest. Okay. The people that stay silent and look at it for what it is, that it's entertainment and you accept it for what it is. Those people are always going to accept it as entertainment and accept it in that way. So he expressed it, you know, expressed his opinions and, and Vince is the final, final word on it. That's what he wanted to do. So you can express them till the cows come home. And if you want to refuse to do it, then refuse to do it and walk out. But never got to that point. People accepted his explanation and moved on. Once the feedback comes rolling in from, as you said, the vocal minority, um, did Vince change his opinion? Fuck no. Vince isn't ever going to change his opinion. No, no, I don't think he changed his opinion at all. If anything, probably dug in deeper to defend his point. What do you think the production meeting sounded like where he's given 
Michael Cole specific instructions, uh, as you said, to say the symbol, the symbol, the symbol, the symbol. God damn it, Michael. Uh, man, it was, you know, never refer to it as a cross, never refer to it as a rising. You know, it was, he had very specific is in, and Michael probably out of fear of misspeaking somewhere, you know, probably overdid it to make sure you understand folks. This is not a cross. This is a symbol. This is a symbol. That's the undertaker symbol to be clear. And was probably drilled into his head a few more than a few times throughout the day. And, and that night as he was actually doing it, when you guys do it, everybody comes to the back. Do you remember any reactions one way or another? Pretty much high fives. Good job. Let's get the fuck out of here. Go have a beer. There, there wasn't, you know, there was nobody. Oh my God, that was worse than I thought or anything else. It, right. it was another day at work. It wasn't something that was when it happened. And you got to understand you're, you're in a bubble. Sure. And in your bubble, when you are removed from the outside world, as, as much as we are, we're really detached in, in a lot of respects that you, you lose, you lose a connection in many ways with there, there were days, man, I didn't know what the fuck was going on in the real world. I, I would just, I would beg for USA today somewhere or I, hell I'd even watch NBC news. Um, just to try and see what else is going on in the world sometimes because you're so in inside. So to get, um, that reaction, you're moving on to the next day. You're not going to sit there and dwell and was it good? Was it bad? You're what's next. What did you think of it when you saw it? You personally, I thought, well, there's Steve hanging up. I hope that fucker doesn't fall. That was it. My, my whole thing was the safety of thinking if that son of a bitch fell, uh, and how Steve was positioned up there and how he was all tied into it. Um, and plus if the damn thing would have fell, it probably would have fallen on me. So I was selfishly concerned as that way. Um, I, in my head, cause I did have the, Hey, this is what people on the outside might think. Probably could have done without it. And gotten to the same point we wanted to. That's hindsight being 2020 and we did it. So it is what it is. Oh man. People are going to just, uh, talk about that angle for a long time. Obviously everybody's really, really critical of it. Uh, Meltzer would say, you know, how far is too far? Um, obviously TSN, as you said, in Canada, edited the entire angle off. I mean, did you think it was too far? No, I didn't think it was too far again in the, in the realm of entertainment. So when you're, you're telling, you know, different stories, how do you get your story across? How do you make your points? And that's all subjective. What's too far for one is not far enough for another. And hindsight's always 2020. And as I said, you know, when you're in the bubble, you can pretty much convince yourself of anything. Um, hindsight, looking back at it, I don't know that it was one of the best ideas to do. Um, it's not one that I would point to with pride. 
and people are going to take away from it what they want to take away from it. I think that's what Vince was trying to communicate, but I don't think we did a real good job of communicating that. I think that when you look at the the majority and you look at um, people that don't know what's inside your head and your only way to tell that story at the time that it's happening is, is a commentator who just doesn't want to fuck up. Maybe a lot got lost, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not one of the things I'm going to point back to and go, hey, that was that was something we did really good. Not a fan of it. Worth mentioning at the Billboard Music Award, Steve Austin presented the Country Artist of the Year Award to Garth Brooks, which is obviously a big show. Uh, it airs head to head with Raw on the USA Network, but this is on Fox. The Country Artist of the Year, even if you're not necessarily a country fan, you know, is a big deal, especially here in '98. And when Brooks is announced as the winner, of course, he comes up, Steve shakes his hand. That's a big deal for the company. You know, any sort of mainstream attention like that, you guys would have courted like crazy before. And now it's just coming your way left and right. Hey, hey, now it's a pain in the ass because we're losing Steve for all. Right. <laughs> That's the funny part about it is we would have killed to just be sitting in the crowd, you know, at the awards. Now. Our top guy is presenting this probably the second biggest uh, award on the entire show to the biggest star in the world at the time, Garth Brooks. It was his hottest. And we're like, nah, fuck. Steve's got to go do this damn, <laughs> damn award show. We're not going to have him for TV. And that was a pain in the ass, but also uh, a big, big fucking deal. Pretty damn cool. Let's get to rock bottom sold out a month in advance, uh, 17,677 in attendance there, $416,000 Canadian, another 156,000 in merchandise. Meltzer would say that the finishes were quote too cute for the most part, leaving the crowd dead. I disagreed with that. Uh, he would say that four hours continues to be hard to keep a crowd's enthusiasm. And the undertaker, Steve Austin match is by far the worst pay-per-view match that these two have had up to that point. And we'll talk about why that is, but he's, he clearly didn't have the same takeaway that I did. Uh, the show opens with uh, Vince McMahon doing an anti-Canadian diatribe and then introduces his son, Shane as a real American. Uh, the set is interesting because you've got these two giant banners on either side of the entranceway of the rock with the big Eagle, uh, your match that aired before the pay-per-view Dwayne Gill would retain the light heavyweight title, pinning Matt Hardy in a minute and two seconds when the blue mini did a run in and delivered a DDT to Hardy. Uh, the fans were chanting boring from the beginning. So you had, you know, a year ago when we covered a December pay-per-view in December of 97, which was last week in your house to generation X, you had high hopes for this light heavyweight title. Now it's Dwayne Gill. Bro, nobody cares about wrestling. They want Gaga. Nobody cares about titles. Nobody. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what we do care about, and that is our friends over at Omaha Steaks because they're making you a hero this holiday season. You get to treat your family to world-class steaks, burgers, and chops, all thanks to our friends at Omaha Steaks. And when we got back from the UK, man, what was on my front porch? A big old box of Omaha Steaks. 
and everybody at my house gets excited because they know Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company, more than a hundred years of experience of delivering perfectly aged beef that's been hand cut by master butchers right there in Omaha. All the beef is USDA inspected and you even have the option to customize your cuts. But what's great about this time of year is Omaha Steaks gives our listeners an amazing limited time offer. And this is the perfect Christmas present. If you've got somebody in your life, it's hard to buy for. Here's a pro tip. This is what you need. Go to omahasteaks.com and just put in our code into the search bar. The code is wrestle. That's wrestle. And you'll get 74% off of the Omaha Steaks family gift package. Normally it sells for $195, but when you enter our code wrestle in the search bar and omahasteaks.com, you get it for just $49.99. Tell them what they get, Bruce. Well, Conrad, you also left out that that was my Christmas present to you. So my Christmas present to you was worth $195. But to all of our listeners, that's right. You can get it for only $49.99. And you want to know what's inside your box? You're going to get four hand-cut top sirloin steaks, two premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steaks burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly brown potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tarts plus get four more burgers for free it's easy get this limited time package for only $49.99 when you go to omahasteaks.com type wrestle in the search bar and add the family gift package to your cart that's omahasteaks.com code wrestle enjoy i gotta tell you we got a lot of cool sponsors here I try everything that we have here on the show. Omaha steaks is the one that everybody in my house is high fiving about. So check it out, man. Uh, next up, we see a clip of mankind attacking the rock before the show started in a luxury box. And he's using a series of objects, including a plant. Uh, he is his usual hilarious self and he's, uh, hitting the rock with what he calls the people's rhododendron and, um, I don't know. This is great stuff, but they're announcing that the rock may have broken ribs and there's no way he's going to be able to wrestle later tonight. A couple more matches on heat before we got started, including Brian Christopher losing to Kevin Quinn, Hunter Hearst Helmsley getting a win over draws, um, and the new age outlaws beating the acolytes very quick, sort of no nothing happened in matches, but a lot of big names for heat that aren't actually on the pay-per-view when we get to the actual pay-per-view. Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler are the hosts and Jr. is not there. Uh, Jr. is not there because his mother passed away. And at the same time, he realized he was suffering another Bell's palsy attack. This is a rough anniversary here for Jr. What do you remember about this? Well, we were, we were in the UK when Jr. got the call about his mom. Uh, I was with him and it, uh, was devastating. It's devastating being so far from home and you have family emergencies and uh, not a whole lot you can do at the time because you figure at best case scenario, if there was a flight leaving right then, it's still going to take you 10 hours to get home at least. So Jim was pretty devastated and he, he went, went to bed and woke up the next day and his Bell's palsy was back and he was in rough shape. So Jim had gone home uh, to take care of everything at home. And, and on top of that, he had his health issues that he had to take care of as well. And it was, man, 
it was just a shitty time for Jr. And I, and I remember of I've been through a lot with Jim, but somehow, uh, you know how you can feel the feelings of your friends and your family. Sometimes this was one that boy, I just felt I I felt for Jim so much. Uh, it was it was a really difficult hard time for him, man. Man, I can't imagine you know to have both of these things happen, and he's got to wonder. I think he even freestyled in a recent podcast now that he thought at the time his wrestling career was certainly over because if he's got this severe of a Bell's palsy attack, there's no way that Vince is going to let him back on. Uh, so Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler are here and they do acknowledge that his mother's passed away and that he's feeling under the weather. What did you guys think was going to be next for Jr.? Well, again, you're talking about his on-camera role, which, in my opinion, was the least important of JR's duties. JR, behind the scenes, was doing talent relations, and he was the best that talent relations ever had. So Jim's role in the wrestling business was never going to be over in that realm. His on-air stuff might have been in question. That wouldn't have stopped him, I don't think, from being able to do voiceover work and do some other things. But... Um, is, as, as we found out, it wasn't the end of it. And he still has been able to go on and, and show that, Hey, even with Bell's palsy and some of the things that he has fought over the years, you can still be successful if you've got passion and heart. And that's what he did. Let's talk about the matches. Uh, first up, uh, or first out rather is Val Venus and man, did he get a huge reaction and then great friend of the show. Uh, and our close personal friend and my new favorite wrestler ever, the Godfather comes out with uh, four hoes as it were. And he says that tonight, uh, he's got a treat for the hoes. Uh, they get Val Venus all night long. And then Mark Henry and Delo come out and Delo has Jackie on one arm, Terry on another. They have a match that, uh, the fans were really behind. Um, I thought everyone's entrance, I was really surprised by the pops. These guys got. Three quarters of a star is the, the rating that Meltzer would give them. They only go five minutes and 56 seconds. I thought the match was pretty good for what it was though. And, and what I really appreciated when I watched this back this time is just how over these guys were like on some level, any of these guys could have immediately been in a tag title match or a European title match, or for that matter, an intercontinental title match. And it would have been believable. It does feel like now. There are more distinct tiers of top guys, a a rung below, a rung below, and maybe even a rung below, but here in this era, especially on this show, it felt like to me, there's the tippy top guys. And then there's sort of everybody else. And, and and that hierarchy wasn't as tiered. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, that's a good way to explain it. And I enjoyed the match. The match was fast, but it was fun. And it was a good time. And behind the scenes note, one of those young ladies that accompanied the Godfather to the ring uh, was his wife. So um, it was great to see her come out. She had she had accompanied him to the ring several times throughout the year. She would uh, come out and be one of the young ladies that he would have on his arm going to ringside. And from time to time, she would she would help me um, pick out some ladies if they weren't. If we weren't in a, a ho friendly area, 
she would uh, say, hey, I'll just go recruit some nice looking girls out in the crowd and everything and and bring them back. And she's a wonderful woman and they're still together to this day. Really? Really and truly. Wow. I didn't expect that curve today. I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad that everybody hopped aboard the Ho train. I miss the Godfather already. I've been away from him for 24 hours and I already miss him. Is he the coolest motherfucker that ever lived? It does feel like he's on the list. Oh yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. Uh, God, <laughs> Charles, Wright, The Godfather, Papa Shango, Kama Mustafa, the soul taker, throw them all in there, man. They're all wonderful people. Well, here's some more wonderful people. Headbangers are going to wrestle Kurgan and Golga. Uh, and by the way, the oddities theme music on WWE network is fucking hilarious. How would you describe it, Bruce? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. It went with, uh, giant Silva's dancing. I thought, I think that's what they did is they went and they, they looked at Silva's dance and his rhythm. And that's what they put it. Oh God. It's horrible. This was. Yeah, this was a shit show. That's about the best I can say about it. Here's what Meltzer wrote, and I thought this was hilarious. Originally, it was to be an eight-man with Giant Silva and Luna on one side and Tiger Ali Singh and Babu on the other. Babu, during the week, was extradited back to Ecuador for a combination of having to stand trial for crimes in that country. I swear I'm not making this up. And got caught uh, having needing the green card to be in this country. So he's done, at least for now. Uh, they were planning to have Luna and Tiger Ali still work the match, but for whatever reason, those plans were changed day of the show. What can you tell us about our man, Babu getting extradited? First time we've used that word here on the program. <laughs> well, I don't know about the crimes. I, I do know about the, the green card and everything. I thought he was an American and we did everything. He'd filled it out. And I think he had a green card and all that stuff when we started and then it had expired, but great guy. Um, I think he's down in Miami right now. So he's in the country and, but we had a little legal issue there and a little visa uh, predicament that we had to take care of. So the change was made, but this was Jesus, man. Um, yeah, this was a shit show, dude. Crowd dies for the oddities after the ring entrance and boy was Kurgan awful. Golga did his first drop kick in the last five years and the finish saw Golga attempt to do his earthquake splash on Thrasher. However, Mosh had tagged in behind his back and came off the ropes with a Thez press for the pin. Negative one star. Don't you know Lou Thez is just rolling over in his grave, having to have his name attached to this match? It's fucking unbelievable. <laughs> you know what's crazy, too, is I couldn't help when I watched this. I I see John Tenta coming to the ring with that stupid mask on and the Cartman doll waving it back and forth. And I just felt sorry for him. Because this is a guy who eight years prior to this was in a main event program with Hulk fucking Hogan, top of the business, SummerSlam main event. Fast forward eight years. Here we are. He was making good money and working every day. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying, I don't know. I died a little inside. Next up, we've got Owen Hart out to a huge pop. Man, I sort of forgot just how over Owen Hart was. Then you remember, oh, it's in Vancouver, but still what an ovation for him. Um, I would even say he got the most enthusiastic babyface reaction on the entire show quote, but this match killed the show as the crowd really wanted to have fun booing the American, but the American was booked for Hart to play chicken shit heel to turn to the crowd and they wouldn't turn. 
So they just killed the whole show. Big chance for Owen and us sucks. They got two and a half stars. Ultimately, uh, Hart just walks out for a count out loss, which was probably Meltzer says the only possible finish that wouldn't have killed the crowd. Uh, they go 10 minutes and 28 seconds. Steve Blackman, still not uh, the world's best wrestler, but Owen carried him to a pretty good match here. I do wish there was a different finish. What'd you think? Yeah, the, the match itself, I enjoyed the match and I enjoy, but see, I also enjoy those kind of crowds too, that are, they're into it for what they're into. Uh, I think that given the atmosphere, I, I wish that we'd maybe switch that up a little bit. Let Owen work babyface. Let, let him work to the babyface crowd, tell a story on TV that he's in his home country crowd. Uh, and, and that's why they're loving what he's doing. Instead, I think that, you know, tried to play the heel and, and the crowd didn't buy it, but the match, the match itself was pretty damn good, except for the finish. The finish was let's save Owen and Steve and neither one of these guys needs to lose, which there was a lot of on this. Next up, we've got the brood and the job squad. Uh, the job squad here, uh, is comprised of Al snow, Bob Holly and Scorpio. And of course the brood is Gangrel, edge and Christian. Uh, the finish sees Christian use the unprettier, the Tommy Rogers maneuver. Um, and he gets the win, but Michael Cole doesn't know what to call it. So he just says with that maneuver, that maneuver, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. uh, he pinned him with what Meltzer was calling the Tamikaze. Uh, it got a star and a quarter, you know, you've got some really talented wrestlers here. We've seen Bob Holly have good matches. We know Scorpio can work. No one's going to doubt Al snow. And they're in there with really top-notch talent, Edge and Christian. Why did this match not translate better, do you think? Well, I don't think that the match was that bad. I just think that it was a six-man for to put a match on the card. That's the way that I felt watching it all these years later. And again, the the whole match itself was okay. It's not one that I'm going to say, oh, my God, that match was great. Um but it was an okay match. It didn't stink the joint out, but I don't know that they gelled and there was no real reason to have the match. It was six guys. Let's put them together and get them out there. And the audience and, and I think everybody else felt it. It's like, okay, I'll watch this, but entertain me. That's well, some good spots. Edge, edge doing the planche over the, t- oh, the top yeah. of the guys outside and shit it was cool. I should mention that's a pretty innovative spot here. Uh, Edge finds himself in the middle of the ring. Gangrel plops down on all fours right in front of the ropes. And Edge gets a running start, uses Gangrel as a step, and then plunges over to guys on the floor, which today doesn't sound like anything big. But 20 years ago was quite right. the high spot. Yeah. And and um, and it was unique in that tag match and just getting into it was was good stuff. All right. Next up, we've got Goldust and Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett has Deborah McMichael here. And the step is if Goldust wins, Deborah McMichael has to strip. So there is a ton of heat in this match because word was out. Jacqueline just showed them chocolate titties on pay-per-view. So dudes like me have set the VCR thinking, oh, here we go. And of course, um, that's not going to happen. Goldust gets a win by DQ. It's not supposed to look that way because. Deborah breaks a guitar over Goldust's head and Jarrett scores the pin. 
with a reverse Russian leg sweep. But then our commissioner, Sean Michaels, who is a bad guy, comes out and baby faces for the crowd and says, well, technically, uh, that was a disqualification because you used a weapon. So I'm going to reverse the decision and announce that Goldust is the winner. So you've got to strip. She reluctantly strips to some music. He pulls some cash out, tucks it between her breasts. And then Jarrett and the blue blazer come out and cover her up and drag her away. Meltzer would say the WWF hasn't delivered on an advertised step on a pay-per-view since 1978 to begin with. And the idea that anyone is going to see that woman with no clothes on for just 29.95 just ain't happening this early in the game. Even so now Deborah is over like a big dog. Although dog is the least applicable description. I can just see it in three weeks that Jeff Jarrett is going to have all the charisma in the world in his ring intro two and a half stars. So it really did get over Deborah in a big way. Uh, what did you think of the match and the, uh, the aftermath? Okay. First of all, I thought the match was good. I thought that the guys busted their ass and all I could think of was this past week when Cody said that gold dust was, was lazy. <laughs> I'm watching this match going, they're busting their ass, having a hell of a match. But the match was good. The finish was what it was, you know, and the guy guy and the, the reverse and so on and so forth. But who in their right mind is actually going to think that a woman's going to strip completely naked? She did do the strip tease. She stripped down to her bra and panties. Um, that's a strip. That's a strip. Take your clothes off, but you're not going to show your, your twig and berries and all that other shit or whatever else wait, you wait, got. Wait, wait, she had twig and berries. No, I'm just in general. I'm using a strip in general, but uh, you're not, you're not getting the puppies. Uh, who would think that in the right mind? And she did strip so that we did deliver on the step and, um, man, you know, Deborah had probably still does. Like I, I assume they're still attached to her. God, she had great legs. I mean, she had great everything else too, but I just remember her always uh, oiling her legs and just, they always look fantastic. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. I like Deborah. Oh, she's. I, I hear you. She's a handsome woman. It's getting, it's getting a little weird. It is. By the way, I do want to circle back. You just casually mentioned, oh, it's like Cody said, Goldust is lazy. To be clear, he said that in their tag matches, Goldust would say, would pull the veteran card and say, nope, you're going to take that one, kid. Uh, so that was the reference to Goldust being lazy. Let's not stir up World War Three over here. No, I don't mean to start World War Three. I, I just, it was a comment because we talked about Meltzer hating the Rhodes family. But you didn't say any of that. You just said, oh yeah, I remember when Cody said Goldust was lazy. Anyway, Deborah's legs. Yeah. Well, that's what you just did. So it would be like. Well, that's what you do all the time. No, I don't. I'm not uh -huh. doing it with, uh, listen, that's the same thing that Jerry Jarrett has heat with you over. I'm just trying to correct. No, that. Jerry Jarrett has heat with you because he's lying piece of shit. Well, um, I, maybe, you know, roll time. Uh, so the outlaws be Ken Shamrock and big boss man to retain their WWF tag team titles in 17 minutes and four seconds. Meltzer would say these guys were in a bad position. How do you get a crowd interested after seeing a woman strip? Well, whatever it is, these guys didn't have the answer. A long, boring match with only Shamrock looking good. Boss man, unfortunately is still Ray trailer. Once the bell rings, I think that's been written in every single match he's worked. Um, they beat up road dog most of the way until Billy Gunn, the single greatest athlete in all of sports. I'm still at a loss as to what he's ever done to deserve that moniker made the hot tag. So he continues just berating the guys, gives it three quarters of a star. 
I am curious why you guys started referring to the best all around athlete in the WWE, Billy Gunn. He probably was tremendous athlete. He was an incredible athlete. He could, uh, guys used to have competitions, sprint competitions, running competitions. Billy Gunn always won. They would have basketball competitions. Billy Gunn would always win. Uh, Billy was a hell of an athlete. He was an absolutely incredible athlete. One of the strongest guys on the roster. Um, just an extraordinary athlete. Not arguing. Turn. Just asking questions. Fresh, fresh. Um, this match sucked. It did suck. This match was fucking terrible, man. It, it was. It felt to me like guys just kind of going through the motions. And it started. It, I wrote. I had a big. I had the big like Ghostbusters uh, symbol across my notes here on this match. It just wasn't really good. And I'm, I'm just beginning to think that maybe the outlaws just needed the right teams to work with back in the day, because I've, I've said it about them with other guys. They didn't have chemistry. I didn't feel the chemistry in this match. And plus Shamrock and boss man were not a team. They were two individuals out there working as singles and the match just never, you know, never got going and didn't really deliver. It was just another one that was just kind of there. Let's talk about the world title match, Mankind and The Rock. And earlier in the show, we saw Mankind have a meeting with Vince and the door to the boiler room said Mankind, well, Mankind's office. And then they go sit down in this little cubby hole and have a conversation. And then later they get to the ring and mankind demands that Vince get down on his knees and tell the world that he never submitted at survivor series because he would never say I quit, which we know of course is going to set up an I quit match at Royal rumble. And we've sort of talked about that and are beyond the mat watch along, but of course Vince isn't going to concede and says the rock told him he heard him say I quit. And that was good enough for him. Finally, the rock jumps mankind and we're off. This is an interesting match. It gets three and a quarter stars. There's lots of submissions or not, not submissions, but silly stuff at the end where Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe and Shamrock and boss man, and everybody shows up, but these guys, I don't know. They had some sort of chemistry. I don't think they were capable of having a bad match. This one isn't the one anybody remembers, but I still was very entertained by it. I thought the match was excellent and they were all over the place and had a lot of Gaga at the end and all kinds of different bullshit, but it was, it was that typical rock mankind match. They did have great chemistry and they busted their ass, but the story getting to it and the, I quit and the finish of this match with the mandible claw where the referee determined rock was out and that mankind won the match and was new champion. But then Vince coming in and reversing it saying, no, he didn't quit. And the only way to win is pinfall or submission. And he clearly did not submit to get to that last match of the, I quit match, which wasn't the last match, but to get to that, I quit match. I thought it was clever as hell. Um, great story and everything leading up to it was a great story with these two guys all the way back to the rock and sock connection and getting here to this point 
uh, just fucking incredible. And I, I just can't enough can't be said about it. And at the end, Pat Patterson coming out and taking those bumps and and getting in the corner and then Briscoe doing the reverse Irish whip into Pat and taking Pat's head off. I enjoyed that shit, and the crowd was up there. I think they enjoyed it, too, and fucking tremendous. Fucking tremendous. Yes, we should tell you that Mankind hits a double-arm DDT, almost gets the fall, but then he pulls out Mr. Sacco, does the claw, and the referee signals for the bell. They announce McMahon, or Mankind as the winner and new champion, but McMahon says since The Rock wasn't pinned and he didn't submit, that even though Mankind won... Rock is still the champ. So mankind goes wild beating everybody up as you just ran through. But I mean, these guys, I don't know. I feel like even though everybody's always going to talk about rock and Austin as being the iconic feud and rivalry for me, mankind and the rock, I think I always remember more than mankind than the, the rock and triple H or even stone cold and the rock. I always go back to this pairing, whether they were the rock and sock connection, or they were having these matches against each other. That's the opponent. I most closely associate with the rock. Well, isn't it interesting when you talk about really remarkable and memorable matches and, and angles and issues with guys that Mick Foley somehow attached to him, you go back to Austin and mankind early on undertaker and mankind. There's the match Shawn Michaels had with mankind in Philadelphia. Uh, mankind in the rock. And I think that, that Mick is probably one of the more underappreciated just talents throughout the years, because that son of a bitch made so many and was a part of so much big, big, big things in making talent. He was incredible. It really is. You know, everybody talks about the other guys, whether it's the undertaker, but he had some of his best matches with mankind, triple H, the rock. Austin, you go down the line. Some of these guys had their most memorable matches with mankind. And I don't know. It always feels like he's, uh, the fifth wheel. I don't know why that is, but let's talk about another match that we don't really understand the buried alive match. It goes 21 minutes and 30 seconds. This is a fucking train wreck. Uh, Meltzer would say this was one of those deals where anything that could go wrong did. Undertaker is already limited. He's been working for months without a rest on a broken ankle. You may remember at King of the Ring, he broke his ankle. Well, that was in June. This is December. It's still broken. Austin is suffering from an intestinal virus and he's barely eaten the previous week. To make things worse, earlier in the match, he takes a bump on the uneven dirt mound and it tore his oblique or abdominal muscle on the right side. So he's working the rest of the match, feeling as if he's being stabbed every time he moves his torso. He winds up going to the hospital after the match and even missed the television tapings, which says a lot since he even made TV the day after Owen Hart dropped him on his head. Really a, a rough match, but this whole burial thing at the end where they're trying to get dirt on the undertaker and they just can't get it in there fast enough. This thing's just fucking snake bit, is it not? Yeah. <laughs> As you watch it, if you didn't know that Steve was sick, you didn't know Taker was hurt, you would say, Hey, this is this pretty good match. They brawled all over the place. They used all the all the tricks to masquerade all of that. 
Uh, so you didn't really notice Taker limping. You didn't notice Steve just being a step off and not really there. But the crazy thing about it is, is this, this is what happens sometimes with people who have never, you know, taken a bump or, or been in the ring and done some things don't understand in, in booking some of this shit. You're working on a mound of dirt and you've got a hole in the middle of that mound of dirt. You're also working with a piece of granite that was, I don't know, maybe a thousand pounds legit. And if you go in, um, you fall in this hole and this tombstone falls in, you're dead. Okay. A lot of variables. And then you've got to get dirt. You've got to make sure everybody is, is safe and all this other bullshit. Um, so it, well, yeah, that part of it wasn't good, but I think that the excitement level up until the finish <laughs> was, was good. But that, that point where undertaker had to get out and, and, uh, Kane to come out, do his bit, wait for Steve to come out with the backhoe. Um, it was painful. It was painful to watch that night live. It was even more painful to watch 20 years later because Steve is livid. You can tell. And I'm, I'm screaming 20 years later. I'm screaming at the TV, probably the way I was screaming at gorilla position. Dump the fucking dirt. Um, it was abominable. It, the finish was the match. Wasn't the match itself. Wasn't that bad for a brawl. That part wasn't that bad. How about the big explosion from the grave that brought Kane up? Yeah. I mean, again, and that was, was timing and you're, and you're trying to get undertaker to where he needs to be. And you're thinking too, with that explosion being safe, uh, safe for Kane, who's right there and undertaker who's on that fucking mound. So you got a lot of pyro in there doing that shit. You got to get rid of the pyro. You got to get uh, Kane into position. Then you got to get Taker back into position. A um, lot of variables in the whole time trying to get this son of a bitch with the backhoe, the, the backhoe expert to come out and fill in the grave. Fuck me running. It was bad. All right. It's time. Tell us how you guys did the. Very no. live shit. No, it's it's magic, and just like we were talking this week, magic's magic, and I won't reveal how how the magic is done. But there's a switch involved, and that's all that's all you're going to get. And guys, got to get in there, get safe. We have oxygen in there to make sure that they're they're safe. But I'll never tell how it's done. That's one I won't tell. It's like tell. Look, everybody knows that the lady gets sawed in half. She's not really being sawed in half. Everybody knows that he didn't get buried alive. But I'm not going to tell you how the trick is done. Sorry. <sighs> They're on your Google machine. They, uh, they did it on one of those magic secrets revealed thing. I don't know why you won't just tell us, uh, overall, how would you rate this, uh, pay-per-view rock bottom? I, I thought that the, <laughs> as crazy as it is, I thought it was pretty good. The, the finish left a bad taste in your mouth because the, the, the damn backhoe operator, not knowing how to get the dirt in the hole and, uh, Steve eventually finally just throwing dirt in the hole with the shovel and went down and got beer and said, fuck it, raise my hand. Um, didn't help things a whole lot, but overall 
It was enjoyable. I thought it was a, a decent pay-per-view. Wasn't great, but it, it was it was enjoyable, and it's one that you can sit back and watch and pop a beer and have a good time with. Around the same time, you guys struck a deal with Eminem uh, Mars, which was a multi-year sponsorship deal worth more than ten million bucks. But the association is what you're most excited about. Of course, Eminem would sponsor WrestleMania the following year. Uh, before we get to some fan questions here, how did the Eminem deal or the Mars deal come together? Eminem was, was landed in uh, Jim Rothschild out of the New York office, the New York sales office. Here's what Vince wanted. Vince wanted a sponsor. Vince wanted a true sponsor that would not only buy advertising on our television shows, but sponsor tours and sponsor WrestleMania and the, the major pay-per-views. And we had had, you know, uh, karate Western union. Yeah. Yeah. Karate fighters, Western union, and some of those that would sponsor one or one pay-per-view here, a pay-per-view there. He wanted a major sponsor for a WrestleMania to bankroll the, you know, be attached. Eminem Mars presents WrestleMania. It's a big deal. And huge deal. And it's a, it's a lot of money. And it was, one of those things that there were a couple things. He always wanted that national sponsor in that regard. And he always wanted a beer and he's never going to do the beer now because they're PG 13, but those were the two big ones at the time. So, uh, man, Jim Rothschild went in and he was able to, to land, land the big dog. He landed the big fish and came back and it was a huge deal to us because it meant, when a sponsor like Eminem Mars comes, then the Coca-Colas and those guys are right behind them. And that's what, that's what it was, man. It was a huge coup. It was a big catch and we were damn happy about it. Well, I'm happy that, uh, Omaha steaks is, uh, taking care of all of our listeners this holiday season. You can send the gift of Omaha steaks. And let me tell you, they're going to be excited. I know I was. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code wrestle in the search bar and you'll get 74, 74% off the Omaha steaks family gift package. It's under 50 bucks. It's only 49 99. We're talking about you getting hand cut sirloin steaks, premium pork chops, kielbasa sausages, burgers, and so much more. One more time, go to omahasteaks.com, type the word wrestle in the search bar, and then add that family gift package to your car. It's under 50 bucks, man. Come on. Let's get to some questions here. Are you ready? I am ready. Travis wants to know how tall is the undertaker? Because when Michael Cole says the grave is six feet deep and the undertaker stands up in it, it's to his waist. So by that math, the undertaker is 11 feet tall. Actually, he's 12 and a half feet. Seriously. Oh. Uh, he's what? Six ten, six nine. Yeah. Taker's about six, nine. I used to be on the six, ten and a half just cause I like that. Um, the, the grave was. The grave was maybe four feet deep. Yeah, I think it was roughly four feet deep. It wasn't six feet. Jimmy, I, Michael Cole lied. He's a liar. Ah, uh, symbol, 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 symbol. That next, that's a t-shirt. Symbol, 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 symbol. Uh, Jimmy, I wants to know after the headbangers match, there's an altercation between Mosh and a fan where the fan shoves Mosh, who then spits on the fan. Any more insight on this? Uh, do not, I don't have any more insight on it other than the fan was thrown out. They were thrown out. Yeah, but I don't, I, 
other than what he just says happened. That's all I know that happened. Uh, the fan was thrown out. Another question he's got here. When Vince comes out of mankind's office, after having a meeting with mankind, you can clearly see mankind having a conversation with the rock down the hallway. Whose fault was this? And why is it Bruce? Wasn't me. I was at gorilla position. You can also see Vince Russo in that shot. Uh, Rory wants to know who came up with the name supply and demand for the team of Godfather and Val Venus, <laughs> bro. What's wrong with that? Uh, Jerry wants to know what you thought of Terry's dancing. <laughs> well, we would be good dancing together. It'd be about the same. So that tells you right there. Uh, Frank wants to know, given this was the first of three straight rock versus mankind WWF title matches on pay-per-view. Was there any thought to having someone else be a challenger for the rock on pay-per-view during this period? No, not during this period because it was hot. And that was something we had that story going on with those two. And it was a good story and it was, people were interested. So no, that was a plan during that time. It wasn't anything else. Antonio wants to know, Hey Bruce, where does Goldust get his wigs? Wigs are us. Francis wants to know if you ever saw the people's strudel. Can't say I have. Dennis wants to know why wasn't it called in your house? The people's elbow. It was much more over than the rock bottom. I don't think the people's elbow was even a thing at that time. It was, he was giving but not, not to the extent that it became after he was the big baby face. In my opinion, the, the people's elbow became much more of his repertoire for finish after, uh, he was a baby face after the heel run. Jeff wants to know, was there supposed to be an Austin boss man match at this pay-per-view? It seems like it, but since he missed his cue for the run in at survivor series, they scrapped it and had to throw Austin in with undertaker. Well, uh, yes, boss man was supposed to have that big run with undertaker and his miscue. You mean, and also, you mean Austin undertaker. I mean, no, I mean, boss man and, and, uh, Austin. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, him missing the queue and, and just not being just, <sighs> he was a little too soft. I think, uh, for Steve and Steve wants somebody who's going to bring it. He wants somebody who would lay it in. Yes. I got you. You don't think you could have told him that and he would have done it. You could have, but I, it, it was already done. He missed a spot. He was working really light and people just lost confidence in him real quick. And, and that's how quick it can happen. I mean, you can be on top of the world and be at the bottom of the heap in a matter of seconds. Scott wants to know, Bruce, what might it sound like if Jim Cornette sang the rocks theme song from 1998? I don't know if a theme song has any fucking words, motherfucker. If you smell what I'm cooking. Uh, Kareem wants to know why didn't the rock main event his own pay-per-view because <laughs> Steve Austin undertaker, they, they, okay. First of all, y- y'all with your main event shit, you think the last match is the main event. The main event's the main event. It's a double main event. Then, um, we close with the goddamn buried alive because you got to close with that because we had all the machinery and all that other crap out there and had to get guys out safely after the fact. John wants to know why was it always Jeff Jarrett who had the weird stipulation matches like strip tease or good housekeeping? <laughs> Cause he's from Tennessee motherfucker. And all our matches have to have something in them. Stuart wants to know who was a better worker, giant silver or great Kali. Oh my God. Uh, seriously. Uh, and on serious note, great Kali by far. 
Brandon wants to know any heat on boss man for giving Billy Gunn the finger and very clearly saying, fuck you on camera. Yes. Yes. One guy does the finger. Nobody says, fuck you. <laughs> well, everybody does just backstage. Yeah. Or at least where you can't see it and hear it. Um, Bill Clay has a question that we get all the time. And I figured let's just throw it in here. I was watching you guys on the WWE network and I have a quick question. What's up with Bruce rocking the shiner? So as a reminder on our something else to wrestle with on the WWE network, there is a picture in your office framed behind your head. That's visible from the WWE cameras. That is you with a black eye, sort of poochy lipped, patty lipped. What's up with that? Brock Lesnar kicked my face in. If, uh, if you go back, there was a scene in Saskatchewan where the FBI locked Brock Lesnar in a room with a forklift. And when the forklift was starting to remove the, the walls started to cave in on Brock and Brock being Brock decided to break out of the room on his own and started kicking the walls in. And when he did, the wall met my face. And that was the result of it. He broke my nose in three different places. He broke my orbital socket, uh, split my eye wide open. And, um, the, my sinuses, he caved in my sinuses. So that is a picture. The funny thing about it is that picture is probably Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that's probably three or four days after that so you know we didn't have camera phones and shit back then so it was it was actually a real camera that took that picture after i'd already gotten stitched up and after i'd already had a lot of it reduced by a doctor well we're not going to reduce the number of shows coming your way we're not taking any days off for the holiday season we're glad you're hanging in here with us and we hope that you don't just have a regular christmas you have a merry christmas nope Something to wrestle with Christmas? Vince, what type of Christmas should they have? A no holds barred Christmas? No holds barred Christmas. God, it's really you're you're rusty today. I am rusty today. I'm sorry. All right, so here's what we got coming up for you. Next week we're gonna do the December twenty second, nineteen ninety seven Raw. So we're covering ninety eight here. We're gonna pivot back to ninety seven. And I wanna cover this one because this is the one where Stone Cold stunned Santa. Uh, I don't know why, but I think that'll be fun. It's the first time we've done a real watch along from 1997. So we're going to watch December 22nd, 1997. Don't watch it yet or go ahead and watch it, but you'll watch it again with us, but you'll turn the sound down and let Bruce and I try to entertain you the following week, a couple of days after Christmas, we're going to cover the first time Mrs. Foley's baby boy wins the WWF title. It was actually taped on the 29th of December, but didn't air until January 4th. Of course, it aired That'll head butts and seats with the finger poke of doom nitro. Come January 4th, we're going to kick it old school, man. We're going all the way back to Saturday night's main event from January of 88. Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. Talk about Wayback Machine. But here's what's coming back, boys and girls. Are you ready? Next week, we're going back to the polls. That's right. You guys are in the driver's seat. We had to lay out these shows because I knew I was doing the European tour and getting married. We've got vacations at the end of the year. We've got lots of stuff planned. But come January, it's all about you, baby. So we're going to throw up the polls starting next week. Now, the only place to vote for these polls 
is to go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Pritchard show or on Instagram at Pritchard show. We'll have links both places for you to be able to get all your information on how you need to vote. doesn't cost anything to vote. It's free to vote. Uh, but we encourage you to check us out there so you can vote on what you want to hear. We've got some cool topics picked out and yes, we're going to go heavy on the Royal rumble in these polls. We'll include the Royal rumble from 1989 on the poll. We'll also have, and this should be fun. 1994, even though we've already covered it before, we've had a lot of requests for us to do a watch along with it, which I can't believe people want, but we'll throw that one on there. Of course, 1999 will be on there. We'll also have 2004, lots of fun stuff coming your way. Uh, so if you haven't already go follow us on Twitter at Pritchard show, and, uh, there's all kinds of fun stuff to cover in the month of January. Uh, any particular topics you're looking forward to us covering in 2019 Bruce? I'm looking forward to all the Royal Rumble stuff, quite frankly, quite frankly, because that was one of my favorites. So anything Royal Rumble, I'm looking forward to. That's going to be a fun. That's going to be a fun little time. I'm looking forward to us uh, breaking down uh, some Stone Cold. Uh, we still need to do a Diesel show. I'd like to do a Yokozuna show. I'm really hopeful that we get to do a China show, and I think we need to do more Triple H. We haven't done enough Triple H, so I'm hoping that we get to knock out a few of those. Um, and you never know, whatever you guys want to, uh, hear, that's what we're going to, uh, go ahead and give you. So look for the poll. And then in the comments, after you've made your vote, you can make suggestions for other topics. Uh, but the only place to get your voice heard is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Facebook, of course, is facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And come January, we're going to have some new information on how you can get a bonus show from us. Uh, we've, we've done drives before, but we said, Hey guys, we can just get to this number of likes or follows or whatever. Uh, then we'll get you a bonus show. We're going to do that too. And the rumor and innuendo is that there's going to be a big announcement in January. You want to give them a, uh, a tease a sample. We're we being tight lipped right now. No, we're being tight lipped right now. You got to keep listening to find out. All right. We'll tune in next week, man. Austin stuns Santa Claus from December. 22nd, 1997. Uh, what a raw, what a time to be alive, man. 1997 is my favorite year. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys right here next week on something to wrestle with. Shakakon. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.